Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pagans Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagans Tonight is sponsored by Witchschool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere magical education. Welcome to Race the Horns Radio. I am Jason Mankey. Thanks for being here with me on my show. It's not a rerun. How exciting is that? That like never happens anymore. Yes, as I'm in like what the fourth year of doing this podcast and half the time I don't do it anymore. And I'm only supposed to do this twice a month. So I'm really sorry if you're a loyal listener. I might get better. Plan to take off the fall from writing. Uh, since it's been a long time since I've really spoken to you all, I'll give you a little update on my life and where things are and what I've been doing. If you're a normal listener, you know that I was not here in May doing any shows whatsoever, as I was in Greece with my wife on a three-week-and-change trip, uh, mostly in Greece, also to the United Kingdom, and then also to Croatia for a couple of days and a few hours in Bosnia, Herzegovina. Never thought I would go there, but there were some waterfalls we wanted to see, so that's what we did. Anyway, uh, the, the big thing, of course, was going to Greece, and I'm a huge, I don't, fan is not the word, I'm not a fan of the gods, I'm a huge worshiper of the Greek gods, I'm someone who's always felt close to the Greek gods, and my wife is in the same boat, I mean, if you were to ask who our house deities are, the answer is probably Dionysus and Aphrodite. And we thank them for things all the time. So the idea of going to Greece and being close to their old temples and where they were worshipped and where their stories were written really appealed to us. And I'm not going to, you know, talk about this for 20 minutes or anything. But, you know, while we were in Greece, we went to a couple of different spots. First, obviously, we went to Athens. You know, Athens is the big place. Athens was quite surprising. It is still a very big city but it's also a city that's not in particularly good shape. There's a lot of graffiti in Athens. Uh, it just, you know, looks kind of beat up in a lot of spots, for lack of a better word. And the traffic in Athens is literally bumper to bumper, I mean, everywhere. I mean, going down a side street, there's about an inch between the car that you're riding in and the cars parked on, on either side of the street. Uh, it's a mess. I would never, ever drive there. Anyway, so uh, it surprised us, I guess, when we came in, and then we got closer, and all of a sudden you can see the Acropolis, which is where the Parthenon is located. And yes, the Parthenon is, you know, quite beaten up, almost said dilapidated. Can I say dilapidated? So many syllables in that word, dilapidated. But, you know, it's not in the best of shape, but still has a commanding presence and a power there, and that's on our first full day in Athens. We went to the Parthenon, of course, and, you know, walked up the Acropolis and got there as soon as it opened, you know, and you're walking there, and, you know, you pass something that says, you know, here was an old temple of Pan, and you're, like, not even close yet, and you're like, wow, and, you know, you get closer and closer, and there's more stuff and more stuff. Then you finally uh, walk up there, and it's still an impressive sight, even 
even broken as it is. Uh, we went early in the morning. You know, people always ask, was there energy there? Did you feel anything when you were at the Parthenon? You know, you're a pagan witch. Did you feel anything while you were at the Parthenon? And, you know, the answer was mostly no, which disappoints people and they kind of get irritated when you tell them. But, you know, it hasn't been used as a site of worship, really, for 1,600 years. And what was there was has been really destroyed, desecrated, really, by Christians. And Christians who hated pagan gods, in order to render those gods impotent in their minds, they would strike the heads off of statues. They'd uh, remove the arms and the legs. So pretty much everything that you look at up there is in that sort of shape. There's no head. Uh, there's no arms. Most of the statues have all been taken into the museum. Uh, so really when you're like at a place like the Parthenon, you have the structure, but that's really about all that's still in there. Uh, we went to the museum where all of the statues are, and it's impressive still. But as I said, a lot of them were broken. Uh, we really liked Athens. We were there for about five days, including a day trip to Delphi, which is where the ancient oracle of Apollo was. Delphi is about a three-hour bus drive uh, from Athens. And in my brain, it, I always had felt like it was away from the sea, but it's actually like on a mountain. It kind of overlooks the ocean. Had to give my wife a little kiss there. She was checking on me. Love is a great thing. And uh, we went to, so we went to Delphi, uh, probably the most pagan of all the places maybe that we went to in Greece, just because the tourism is all about Apollo's old temple there. So all the stores are geared to the Greek gods, and you can buy shirts with Greek gods, and you can buy plaques and plates with Greek gods on them, and you can buy all those things in Athens too, but that's like the thing in Delphi. I kind of think of it as like the Glastonbury of Greece because it kind of had that sort of pagan pilgrimage the sort of feel to it and again the, the temple is pretty much destroyed you know all the statues are pretty much destroyed because you know that's what the Christians did I went to Eleusis while we there we were there which is where the mysteries took place we were two of five tourists there uh, that spot really is mostly a pile of rocks and it just sounds uh, so depressing to say that it's mostly a pile of rocks but that's what you know that's what it is it's mostly a pile of rocks and again all the statues that exist were brought inside uh, but you know if you can let your imagination run you do kind of get an idea of what it might have been like there a long time ago so that's most of our our trip to the mainland of Greece was those three spots in and around Athens. Eleusis is only like 14 miles from Athens proper. Uh, from there we went to a couple islands. We went to the island of, gosh, I'm like, my uh, my brain is Santorini, the island of Santorini or Thera, which many people have wondered is, is, that, is that Atlantis since there was a really advanced civilization that lived there about 10,000 years ago and there was a not 10,000 years ago, Jason. Like 
4,700 years ago. An advanced civilization lived there. Volcano blows up, buries the advanced civilization. It probably led to some huge changes throughout the Mediterranean Sea at that point. And we know that the Egyptians saw the um, ash and the smoke because it was, it's a huge crater, and you can still see the crater. Uh, the island of Santorini is about, I think, seven miles long and only maybe two miles wide at its you know peak. It's just, it's just not very big, but it's beautiful, beautiful. We went there to see the sunsets and things, and it's a big tourist trap, and it was really nice. And then from there, we went to the island of Crete, which might have been our favorite uh, Crete has kind of relatively big cities it's mostly a tourist thing it's it's clean it felt a lot safer than athens though we had no trouble in athens i don't want anyone to think that we might have the greek people were all very nice um and they were fantastic uh, but crete is where gnosis is which is the old palace of um city of perhaps the legendary king minos who had the minotaur and that was a really fun uh, morning when we were there and they have some really nice museums and uh, it was just really great that's probably our favorite of our stops on our trip and from there we went to Dubrovnik in Croatia which is the city where uh, they filmed Game of Thrones all the scenes at King's Landing which is really fun and then uh, we went to England and we saw somebody who we're going to talk about in a little bit on like the main thrust of the show, but I just wanted to get you all caught up in my life because it, as I said, it has been a long time. I started, we started our trip, not in Greece though, but we started it in the UK where I spoke at Atlantis Bookstore my second time there. Atlantis is one of the three big occult bookstores in London with Watkins Books and Treadwells, but Atlantis is my favorite because there's just so much history there and Geraldine is the owner. It's so nice, and uh, I just love them. And when you talk there, you get to talk in the Gerald Gardner room. And, you know, for a witch, I mean, there's not much cooler than talking in the Gerald Gardner room. So, fantastic. Anyway, um, that was a great way to start our trip. And we saw a Mithrarium while we were there, which is a place where the god Mithra would have been worshipped. It's an old thing that was excavated in London Back in the 1960s, and Bloomberg, as in Mike Bloomberg, his big company, they built a big, you know, big tower in downtown London, and they installed the Mithrarium in the basement, it's, and that was near where it was originally dug up, and it's free to get into, so it's kind of a cool thing to do if you're ever in London. So that was our trip, um, I don't know, 23, 24 days or something like that, um, our longest trip that we've ever taken. Uh, really amazing, lots of memories forever. While I was there in Athens one night, I got an email from Llewellyn saying that they had accepted my next book proposal. So as soon as I got home, it was nose to the writing grindstone, especially because I didn't give myself a lot of time to write this particular book. And this book is going to be called The Witch's Wheel of the Year, Rituals for Solitary Circles and Covens. It's a book about ritual. There's a ritual, uh, three rituals for every Sabbath and a ritual for covens, large groups, what I call circles in the book, and solitary. So there's 
you know, a bunch of different rituals and things and tips on how to do good ritual and a little bit of history here and there. And all my rituals are really, really creepy long, like thousands of words. So it's going to be a really long book. And most of you already know I have a couple of books coming out in the next few months. In November, The Witch's Altar, which I wrote with Laura Tempest-Zakroff, will be out. My last ever Toolboy book, having previously written The Witch's Athame and The Witch's Book of Shadows. And then in January, the book that I'm most proud of, Transformative Witchcraft, The Greater Mysteries, comes out. We'll be talking a lot more about that book in the coming months on this show as I promote it. But I'm just really, really proud of it. It's about was Gerald Gardner initiated into a witch coven. It's about initiations and elevations, the history of such things in esoteric societies, how to build your own. Got some samples, of course, so you don't even have to. You can use my really great, fantastic rituals. Uh, a section on drawing down the moon, history of that, how to do it, more things of that nature. Uh, there's also an entry on the cone of power, building the cone of power techniques for raising energy that you can use. A little bit of history of what is known as Operation Cone of Power, which was done to prevent the Nazis from invading England. Nazis. Who would have thought we had to worry about Nazis again in the United States? And here we are in 2018. So still very, very, very relevant. So that's the uh, transformative witchcraft. It was originally called the uh, Five Mysteries of Witchcraft. And then, you know, when you write for Llewellyn, they kind of <laughs> overvote you, I guess. You know, you're overruled. Too bad, Mankey. Don't get your title. And Transformative Witchcraft is a much better title. Um, you can order both of the books that will be out in the next couple of months now online. Every once in a while I see that like somebody has ordered one, which I think is the craziest thing, um, which makes me really proud and, and really happy. So there you go. That's what I've been up to. It's a lot of writing. It was a long trip. And writing, writing, writing like every day, thousands of words to reach my September 15th deadline. That's part of the reason why I've been doing the show as much. Just uh, so much. Just It'll be three books out in one calendar year, I think. I turn this book in September that I'm working on now. They usually come about a year after I turn the initial draft in. So, yeah. Um, it's a lot of books in a short period of time. So it's been a lot of writing. Anyway, tonight's... That was the introduction, 15 minutes of introduction. Uh, the big story tonight on the show and what I'm going to be talking about, there's no guests. It's just me. It's unfiltered. It's unplugged. Uh, and I feel sorry for you. It's going to be great. Uh, last week online, as the blog raised the horns, I wrote something called the 25 Most Influential Living Pagans. It's something that I'd been wanting to write for a little while, and because it's a list, and because some people think that if I write a list, I'm saying that this is exactly how it is forever and ever, uh, which I am uh, certainly not. But, you know, people always get, woo, you know, their feathers ruffled by lists. So, you know, a lot of talk, a lot of sharing of this particular post. Um, and as I said, I was inspired to do it after... A friend of mine, Terrence Ward, who writes at the Wild Hunt, sent me a link from the old days of the Wild Hunt back in 2004. It pains me to think of the old days 
of uh, the world is 2004. But in the pagan world, when I looked at this list that he had sent me of the top 25 influential modern living pagans, um, looking at it now, it feels like long ago. Uh, some of it is, uh, some of them have passed away. Um, I mean, and that happens. Uh, I'm looking at uh, Pete Pathfinder Davis, who passed away, who uh, founded the Aquarian Tabernacle Church. Um, of course, Marco Adler a few years ago. Carl uh, from Llewellyn. Carl Wyshecki, who, who um, didn't find he didn't found Llewellyn, but he bought it and turned it into what it is today. Uh, he died, I think, about a year ago. Isaac uh, Bonowitz a few years ago. Ray Buckland just a year ago. And um, I'm going to say his name wrong. Alexi Kondrativ. Uh, I know that he passed away not too long ago. So there were people on the list who had passed. Uh, there were people on the list who now I don't think we'd let in the pagan community. And when I say the pagan community, I mean the pagans who go to festivals, read stuff online, uh, go to blog spots, interact in those blog spots. Uh, you know, the people who are engaged in day-to-day -day paganism. Um, and one of those people on this list is a guy who's written a lot of things, uh, Stephen McNallan. Uh, but he's also a folkish heathen, which means he's kind of a racist. Uh, you know, I can't imagine anybody putting him on a list today. He's become kind of a pariah in most parts of the pagan community. Uh, his group has really uh, changed, I think, since this list was written in 2004. Um, so, you know, I'm looking at it, and there's another entry on there called House Wodening, a group that I have never even heard of. Um, you know, and I thought that I knew some shit about paganism in 2004. And I look at this list and I'm like, maybe I, maybe I didn't. So uh, I thought making my own might be fun and kind of fascinating, especially to compare it to what had come before it. And out of the 25 on the list, the original list, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight of those 25. So eight out of the original 25 made that cut. You can find that list, uh, the original list, there's a link to it on my actual post, the 25 most influential living pagans at Raise the Horns, the blog. But so I put this list together and I thought, you know, how do you put a list like that together? What criteria do you look at? The first thing, you know, it's present day influence. You know, do they sell books? Do the things that they've done previously still resonate? As in, did you start a tradition? Is it still going on? Do you, did you come up with a technique or an idea that's still ongoing? Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to measure influence, you know, and it's, sort, it's definitely a judgment call. But that's the first thing I looked at. And then I looked at involvement in the pagan community. Um, things that I thought of first are, are they on social media? Um, one of the things that people who didn't like my list, they would, you know, list other people. 
And they're like, well, this is a, you know, an important person. And I'm sure that it's an important person locally or, you know, or they do important things and maybe they do it quietly. But then I check their social media and they have a hundred followers on Twitter. Now I realize that how many Twitter followers you have does not mean everything in the world. However, it means something. Um, it shows how involved you are. Many people know who you are, kind of what your reach is. Again, going back to influence, um, you know, there are people with thousands of followers online and in other places. And obviously, if you have a thousand followers versus 25 followers, your influence is probably better if you have more people uh, paying attention to what you write. Um, also, involvement in the pagan community, do they teach publicly? Um, do they write blogs? You know, what, what's, what's that presence like? And then kind of uh, like those other ones, but a little bit different is how their decisions impact paganism. We may not think about the acquisitions editor of Llewellyn, who oversees paganism and witchcraft as an influential pagan, but because we give those books uh, so much value, and I will say that, you know, if books are still seen as something that legitimizes a teacher, especially if that book says Llewellyn or Wiser on it, um, the person who holds that gateway open has a lot of influence, you know, just the truth of it. It's a big deal. I think it's something that's over overlooked. It's often overlooked. If you are a magazine editor and you're picking the magazine articles that run or you run a giant blog spot and you pick the people who write there, uh, your decisions are impacting paganism. If you are the pagan news source and what you report on can literally ruin or make a life, then yeah, your decisions are impacting paganism. And I don't want to imply that anyone has made a decision uh, that was wrong that ruined a life. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, and then you got to kind of think of people's legacy a little bit. Think of what they've done in the past where those things will go going forward. We've lost a lot of the first and now second generation of modern paganism. The, the first generation were people like Gerald Gardner, who died in 1964, or, or Robert Cochran, uh, people of that nature. You know, they're at the very, very beginning. Alex Sanders, who passed in 1989. These were the first... Uh, public witches and pagans. These are the first persons to ever be in a newspaper and say, hello, I'm a witch. These are the first people to write a book or pass down a tradition. And, um, you know, we have been losing them for quite a while now, though there are still people alive who practice with Gerald Gardner. Patricia Crowther is still alive. Um, so that generation has not uh, completely passed yet. Uh, a lot of it has. And then there's kind of the second generation who came of, came of age in the 60s and the 70s, uh, founded new groups, took paganism to different places, new places. In America, I think this was especially important um, because in America, you really kind of got 
this really wide sort of paganism that moved far beyond witchcraft and druidry. And a lot of it were these people from the 60s and 70s. I mean, some of the names uh, you know, like um, Isaac Bonowitz, who uh, was a part of the Reformed Druids of North America up in Carleton College in the 60s and later founded ADF, another Druid group, um, and did all kinds of things uh, for quite a while. But, you know, he was a part of that generation. Or Oberon Zell, who was one of the founders of the Church of All Worlds, and we'll get to him again a little bit later as we talk about the 25 people that I chose for my little thing. So, you know, we are starting to lose some people and from those two generations. Um, and then now, you know, we've got a whole brand new group of people coming up with influence and doing great things. So and I think it's a good time for paganism. Coming up with a list of 25 people, and I think my list is actually 26 entries, and a couple of them, you know, are doubled down, like I include a, a partner or a spouse. Um, 25 people is not very much. I mean, if there are several million pagans in the in the entire world, 25, 26 pagans is just sort of scratching the surface. And again, these are all sort of judgment calls. You know, it's always it's always fun to see people like, God, he's so stupid, you know, when you look at stuff online. And I'm not saying that I'm smarter than anybody else. I just wrote a list and they didn't. Uh, of course, it's going to reflect my biases my opinions. However, uh, I didn't pick just all witches because those are the ones who would have influenced me the most. I didn't think that's very representative of paganism by any by any means. Um, so, I mean, it wasn't completely geared just towards me and my, um, you know, ideas. You know, as an American, though, you know, I'm, it's probably going to be more Americans on the list. And there's a comment on the blog. I don't usually delete comments unless they're really, really terrible, you know, accusing me of ignoring Canada. Well, I mean, there's there's a numbers thing there. I mean, there are 325 million people in the United States. Um, you know, Canada has uh, 36 million people. I mean, Americans are going to be more influential because there are more of us. You know, and there are some really great Canadians. Uh, Sable Aradia, who wrote, um, what is it? Um, she wrote like, uh, like, oh, what's that book called? You know, you get on the show and like your your brain just goes crazy. The Witch's Eight Paths Power, which was a wiser book. It came out uh, just a couple years ago. Great book. Great book. Um, you know, and for a while she had a big web presence online, too. She still does a podcast. She still writes periodically, though she mostly writes fantasy. She's a great witch and, you know, somebody who I could possibly put on this list. Uh, but she just she just didn't make it for whatever reason, in my opinion. The Dragon Ritual Drummers are one of my favorite pagan groups. And I don't even usually like drums. And they're great. And, you know, they're almost made my list. There's some fuck part, and I don't like to cuss on the air, but, you know, there's some really freaking great Canadians out there. Um, didn't just skip Canada because I have some sort of hatred of Canada. You know, there's just a lot more Americans. That's just how it rolls sometimes. Um, so you got to sort of take the population of things into account. And, you know, when you do a list, you're not looking to offend people, but people are often looking to be offended. 
which is one of the reasons I decided it might be fun to talk about this on my hour of podcasting every other week. So, yeah. So the list, I, I didn't do it in any particular way. If you were to ask me who the most um, influential pagan living in the world today, though, I'll tell you that the answer is Starhawk, who's obviously on my list. The Spiral Dance from 1979 is uh, one of the four most important pagan books ever written. It's really the first serious book to be published by a major press about modern witchcraft. You know, and there were some that were published by major presses, but uh, I do not think that they were done with the same level of respect and dignity that Starhawk's Spiral Dance was done with when it came out in 1979. Before that, you know, you had writers like Sybil Leek who wrote for large publishers, but, you know, they were all sort of little mass market paperbacks and the titles were always very, you know, sensational. Diary of a Witch, you know, and, you know, Starhawk's book says The Spiral Dance. You know, you have to really think about what this book is going to be about. And so not only did she write this great book, she wrote the first really, truly great uh, Wiccan Witchcraft 101 primer. Uh, you know, it was a well-written book. It told you actually how to do things and it explained them. Uh, when I look at it, sometimes I still don't think that the you could express ideas any clearer than what Starhawk did in 1979. Uh, she also took the American paganism that had been bubbling up, which was really politically active. It was a lot more eco-centric and concerned about the environment than I think things in the 50s and 60s had been. Uh, it was about uh, equal rights. It was about gay rights. It's become about trans rights, which is fabulous. That was what Starhawk articulated within this uh, framework of Wiccan witchcraft in 1979. And she really sort of defined Wicca, I think, for the modern age. And there'll be people who don't like Starhawk's book or whatever, and that's fine. I'm not saying that you have to love it. I'm just saying that it was supremely influential. And as I said, I think it is the most, um, you know, one of the most important books. And that, you know, if I had to name the person who would be number one on my list, it's Starhawk. But other than that, I uh, I wrote them all <laughs> in alphabetical order because I'm not a fool and uh, don't really want to get raked over the coals by lining people up by number. I'll just let you know the Starhawk one. So now let's get into the nitty gritty and the big thing and like why all these people are on my list and who they are if you haven't read the whole post. As I said, they're all in alphabetical order, with the exception of my fangirling or fanboying all over Starhawk. So uh, I'm going to start with John Beckett. And I, I feel like this was a little selfish to put John on my list, because John is a friend of mine, and he writes Pathios. It's like, oh, you're supporting Pathios pagan writers. But it's not really that. It's the fact that John Beckett's blog is one of the most read blogs all in all pagandom month in and month out. And John speaks to a bunch of different groups under the pagan umbrella. 
And a lot of people don't really do that. And and John speaks to large swaths of people. I mean, first he speaks to just general pagans. If you're a witch or a druid or a ceremonial magician, it's likely that John will have something uh, for you that's worth reading. I mean, he writes a lot of general sort of things, so there's going to be things for you if you are just a general pagan. But John is also kind of a specific pagan in some ways. He's an Obad druid, and that's the kind of druidry he practices. There are many different druid orders and things, and they're all kind of different, And but I think that there's enough there that they, you know, share in common that, you know, you can look at it as, you know, and, you know, like a tradition, a general tradition like Wicca or something. So he's Obad druidry, but he's also one of the leading uh, voices in polytheism, not just polytheism in that I believe there are many different gods and goddesses, but polytheism is people who identify first and foremost as polytheist. You know, when I was starting in paganism so many decades ago, back in the 90s, I think most of us thought ourselves as polytheists, but a polytheist was a, a word we used to describe our witchcraft or our Wicca or our Druid practice or whatever it was. And now there are people who just describe themselves as Druids first. And John is one of the most eloquent writers on that topic. And then John is also a part of the Unitarian Universalist Church. And he writes a lot about his UU experiences. I think if you were to ask him the group that he works with the most when he's home in Texas, are the UU. So he encompasses, you know, four different sort of spheres of paganism. And that's something that a lot of people don't do. His book, The Path of Paganism, was also great, though. And as I said, you know, I really like John, other than that he's a Cowboys fan. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? But I do really feel like as if John is a big voice. A, vo a name that was not on that original list, which really, really surprises me, is the name of Lori Cabot. Now, I heard from someone who I think was a student of hers that she does not identify as a pagan. You know, that's okay. I'm still going to put you on my list because it's about people who have influenced the pagan community. And Lori Cabot has certainly done that. She is one of America's most well-known and most respected witches. I know, if you know anything about Lori Cabot, she is not a conventional dresser, and some people think that means that she is not serious about her practice. Uh, I think, you know, judge a book by its cover not. Uh, Lori is very serious about her practice. And if you look at the amount of people that she's inspired over the years, uh, her influence is even greater than being like the first official witch of Massachusetts. Lori Cabot, in a lot of ways, is responsible for Salem becoming the witch mecca that it is. But Christopher Penzak was a student of hers, and Christopher Penzak's a person who is on this list. So I think it's safe to say that the legacy of Lori Cabot is wide-ranging. It's bigger than a lot of people think. You know, she's been on TV shows since the 1980s, probably since the 1970s. That's longer than a lot of people have been alive who are probably listening to this podcast. I think she's been a public witch longer than I've been alive. And, you know, I'm seeing the cobwebs on myself these days. So Lori's been doing this for a long time.
Um, no question. Uh, Philip Cargum is on my list. Philip is the chosen chief of the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids. That's Obob. That's the group that uh, John Beckett is in. The Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids is the largest Druid order in the UK, and I think it's the largest Druid order in the world. You know, one of the things about being an Obod, you could be a pagan or you could be a Christian Druid. Oh, I think it would be hard. Uh, so it's a really open tradition in a lot of ways. He was a student of Ross Nichols, who really was sort of the first modern public pagan Druid in a way that Gerald Gardner was the first modern public pagan witch. And uh, Philip is responsible for Nichols' book, The Book of Druidry, seeing print. And I would argue that The Book of Druidry is kind of one of those essential Druid books, that if you're going to be a Druid, that's kind of one of the things that you need to read. Phillips has written his own books, too. Uh, you know, I don't think he's somebody who's particularly famous in the United States, but I think he's done a lot for paganism on the world stage and paganism in the United Kingdom. So that's why I put him on my top 25 list. Teethorn Coyle is someone that when I was originally putting the list together, I thought maybe I won't put Thorn on there. I certainly would have five years ago without a second thought. Part of that is because Thorn, I don't know, seems to have switched to mostly writing fiction, uh, more so than witchcraft books at this point. But Thorn's influence is still around. She wrote uh, Evolutionary Witchcraft, which was a terrific book that came out, I think, about 10 years ago. She still goes to a lot of festivals and does a lot of public teaching. Um, her Solar Cross group uh, does a lot of outreach, and they have a big internet presence. I really put Thorn on this list, though, for one reason. I put T. Thorn Coyle on this list because I think that she's ahead of the curve on issues of social justice and inclusion. You know, she was sounding the drum for providing spaces, accepting and welcoming spaces for our trans brothers and sisters, you know, long before most people even thought it was an issue or really had given much thought to the topic. I think she's just so far ahead of everyone in paganism and um, the country as a whole. You know, in 20 years, we're going to be looking back and we're going to say, oh, yeah, Thorne already thought of that. You know, she was already on top of that. And I think that legacy is something that is going to be felt in 100 years uh, when pagan festivals are a place where we don't discriminate, where pagan festivals are a place that are open to all. Pagan festivals are a place where we accept people for who they are and treat everyone with dignity and respect. So, uh, Teeth on Coil, that's why she made my list there. After that was Vivian Crowley. Uh, Vivian is an English writer. She's also an initiated witch. She does a lot of interfaith things. Um, her book, Witchcraft, the Old Religion, is kind of, I think Ronald Hutton called it the English version of the spiral dance, meaning that it's this extremely well-written, beautiful text about witchcraft. And she's also been a teacher to a lot of people. I had a guy in my coven in California who had taken some classes with Vivian Crowley. So she's done a, a lot of things. Um, again, I think her influence might have been bigger 10 or 15 years ago, but I think it's still really strong. 
if you ever get to Glastonbury in England, you can go to every store in Glastonbury, and the music that you'll hear there is by Dave the Bard. You can go to the pet supply store, you can go to a restaurant, you can go to a witch shop, a crystal shop, you can go to an antique store. They're all playing Dave the Bard, every last one of them in Glastonbury. I think Dave is probably the most listened to pagan artist in the world today. I can't base that on anything in particular, but when I look at uh, people that are wanted at festivals, I, you know, I look at a guy who can tour in Europe on his own as as Dave the Bard. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, I think it's Dave. And, you know, one of the things about Dave is that he's not just a musician. He's also a really amazing teacher. I have sat in some of his classes, and it's just enthralling. And he's also a great storyteller. He could probably describe a trip to the grocery store in such beautiful detail that I would be captivated, and I would listen to it. Um, yeah, so uh, Dave is a big voice in paganism, and I think in 100 years we'll still be listening to songs by Dave the Bard. He's also an Obod. So that's three Obod Druids on my list. That's, that's, a, lot of, that's a lot of Obods. Um, next is Ivo Dominguez Jr. I, I put Ivo on the list for a couple of different reasons. First of all, you know, he teaches all the time. He's got uh, students. He's got a thriving tradition behind him. He writes a lot of books that a lot of people really love. Uh, but a lot of it is he's just the hardest working teacher that I know. If you go to a pagan festival, there's like a 95% chance that he will be there doing workshops and rituals. And he does them all really, really well. Uh, he's also just a terrific person, like just a great guy to hang out with and talk to. It, you know, it's the kind of leader that you want in the pagan community who's going to listen to everybody and make you feel like what you have to say really matters. He's also one of the people spearheading the New Alexandrian Library Project. If you haven't heard about the New Alexandrian Library, it's a library that they're building to, ha to house, you know, all the pagan and witch books ever published. Uh, when I die, I want to give my books to the New Alexandrian Library. And we do such a shitty job as pagans and witches sometimes preserving our history and respecting our history uh, that to see something like the New Alexandrian Library Project, it gives me hope that we are going to end up having something to pass down um, to generations later. I mean, we've lost a lot of stuff from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So I like seeing things like the New Alexandrian Library. Uh, next on my list is Lilith Dorsey. Uh, you may or may not know Lilith. Uh, Lilith is mostly a voodoo practitioner, but also identifies as a witch, and she lives in Brooklyn. She's very involved in New York City with a lot of things. She's also very involved in New Orleans, even though she lives in Brooklyn. Last June, I was in New Orleans, and boom, there was Lilith, and I got to hang out with her for a while. One of the things that I think makes Lilith such an important figure is that she's someone who practices voodoo, who's intimately involved with the greater pagan community. And there are a lot of voodoo practitioners who have who want nothing to do with all of us. And, you know, voodoo is 
is our cousin. It's, you know, a lot of the things they do is really similar. I think voodoo has influenced a lot of modern pagan traditions, especially witchcraft, which you can read about in Transformative Witchcraft coming in January 2019. Sorry about the plug. Uh, and to have somebody of Lilith's intelligence and decency bridging those worlds, I think, is a really important and influential thing. If you were to ask me who the most famous ritual magician in the world is today, I would say Lon Milo Duquette. And if you're somebody who's very serious about the study of magic, you undoubtedly own some books by Lon. Uh, Lon's been doing this longer than most of us have been alive. He's been he's the longest serving member of the OTO right now. Uh, so. You know, he's a, he's a living legend in a lot of ways. He started releasing music again after a 40-year break. His his CDs are fun and worth listening to. He's a great teacher. He's a, he's a great performer. And I think that he has left a real legacy and impact on the OTO, which is an important pagan organization. I don't know if everyone in the OTO identifies as a pagan, but I think that they've made a great contribution to paganism nonetheless. And then to magic, and most of us practice magic. Uh, next on my list was Janet Farrar and Gavin Bone. You know, you could look at that and say, oh, Janet's on there for past glories. You know, Janet and her late husband, Stuart, wrote uh, The Witch's Bible, which is a compendium of two books, um, Eight Sabbaths for Witches and um, another one. Gosh, sometimes the brain just shuts off. Anyway, um, and they wrote The Witch's God and The Witch's Goddess. Those are really important books, especially, I think, to Generation X pagans, because they're some of the books that we grow, grew up on. But Janet and Gavin now are still writing books and still touring the world and uh, still being positive voices for witchcraft. And if you read Janet and Gavin's latest books, I mean, again, they're advocating for a witch and pagan world that is really accepting of everybody. And I think that's the future, and that's where we're going. And because of that, super serious, influential pagans. Maybe after Starhawk in the United States, I said maybe. I'm not going to say for sure. Don't want to have the argument, but uh, Selena Fox is definitely one of the most living, influential pagans in the world. If you don't know Selena, she's one of the people on this list who really has never written a traditional book as such, you know, a Llewellyn book or anything. But Lou, uh, Selena helped establish Circle Sanctuary in Wisconsin, which, you know, is one of the first real sort of pagan churches in the United States. Circle ministers are all over the country at this point. It's a thriving tradition. They have their own festival, Pagan Spirit Gathering, which, of course, anyone can go to, and it's freaking amazing. But uh, Selena does a lot of work for pagan rights, really, and that might be her most lasting legacy. When you see a pentacle at Arlington National Cemetery on the tombstone of a soldier, a lot of that work was spearheaded by Selena Fox, who is a part of the Lady Liberty League, and they do a lot of that work, and that's all Circle, and that's all Selena. So it's a, it's a pretty big deal. I don't think I've ever met anyone who said to me, no, Selena Fox doesn't belong on your list. 
So there's no real argument there. The next two people, though, are people that uh, others have wanted to argue with me about. The first on my list is Alicia Gallo. Alicia is my boss at Patheo, at Llewellyn, not at Patheos. She's my boss at Llewellyn. Uh, she's the one who offered me a book contract, so you could say that I'm sucking up, but I am not sucking up. She has been the senior acquisitions editor at Llewellyn for Witchcraft and Pagan Books since 2005, and there's a real sort of line in the sand you can see with Llewellyn when it comes to different eras. In the 90s, and some people still think that all Llewellyn prints are books like Witta and Irish Pagan Tradition, and that's bullshit. You know, get out of your goddamn house and look at stuff. Uh, the books that Llewellyn has been publishing the last uh, 15 years are really good books. You know, they take the scholarship seriously. You don't just get to say whatever it is you want. You have to prove it. And a lot of that is all Alicia. Kind of similar to Alicia Gallo is Heather Green. You probably don't know the name Heather Green, but Heather Green is the managing editor of The Wild Hunt. The Wild Hunt's probably the most read one pagan blog on the internet, and The Wild Hunt is basically a newspaper for pagans. They print one article a day. They print about five news articles a week, a couple of um, opinion pieces here and there. But, you know, Heather, as the editor of this news source, you know, has the power to break news. Uh, she has the power to report on things, and the things that she reports on have repercussions. So, yeah, very, you know, important pagan, because she's making decisions. If she is wrong as a reporter and were to, you know, file an inaccurate story or something, you know, it could ruin somebody's life. The great thing about Heather is that she is a really good journalist, so that kind of thing does not happen. And I'm certainly not accusing her of that. Are you going to like everything that she publishes in The Wild Hunt? No. I mean, I don't. Sometimes she writes about Patheos Pagan, and I think, you know, they're making a big deal out of something that's not a big deal. However, it's still news, and, you know, that's her judgment, and she's not reporting anything that's not true. So, yeah, Heather. Heather Green. She's also an acquisitions editor at Llewellyn now, so she's like consolidating all of her influence in just a couple of spots. Next up on my list is Raven Gramassi, uh, along with his wife, Stephanie Taylor Gramassi. You know, this is an entry that surprised a lot of people, including Raven and Stephanie, who both sent me nice little notes about why I chose them. But you know, Raven Gramassi has been a best-selling witch and pagan author now for like 25 years. It's a pretty long time in the pagan world. And even today when people are, you know, looking at first books or curious about things, oftentimes they pick up a book by Raven. And he does online classes and he still tours and goes out on the road a lot. And Stephanie might be sharper than he is. I've really enjoyed listening to her over the years when I've had that opportunity. So uh, to me to put them on this list is uh, makes perfect sense. Uh, I don't always agree with everything that Raven writes, especially historically, but I think he's a pretty nice dude. Uh, he's a talented writer, and those things, uh, you know, count for something. 
Next up on my list was Ronald Hutton. Ronald Hutton is probably best known in the pagan community for his work on the book Triumph of the Moon, which uh, came out in 1999. And Triumph of the Moon was the first real sort of historical, real history look at modern pagan witchcraft, as he terms it. And uh, to me, it was just a ground changer. Until that book, there was this really widespread belief that Wicca was something that was thousands of years old and had been passed down in secret for all this time and then, you know, finally reemerged in the early 1950s. And, you know, that really just wasn't the case. <coughs> I'm sorry. I'm in California, of course, and we have wildfires burning all around us, so there's smoke everywhere, so my voice is not what I want it to be. Uh, but it was the first real academic look at pagan history, and in that sense, it was a game changer and really encouraged us to sort of relook at where everything came from. If you've never read Triumph of the Moon, it's divided into two parts. And the first part, which is really probably the bigger part of the book, is about what Hutton thinks are the influences on modern paganism. Um, they have titles like, you know, Finding a Witchcraft. And, you know, he looks at Freemasonry for the ritual structure of things. He looks at certain individuals like Dion Fortune and Margaret Murray and Aleister Crowley, who left really big uh, fingerprints all over modern witchcraft. And he makes just a really great argument. I think he's a really talented writer. There are a lot of people who cannot read academic stuff. They find it boring. I've probably read Triumph of the Moon 25 times. Also, another thing about Ronald Hutton is anyone who's ever met him, and I'd probably gush if I ever met him, so I'm not sure that I want to, but they always tell me how nice of a person he is. And he speaks at a lot of pagan events. And, you know, it's, I don't know if he self-identifies as a pagan. There are always, like, different opinions on that. Like, oh, yes, he's this, and oh, yeah, he's not that. Uh, but, you know, he's certainly a part of our extended community, I remember when Triumph of the Moon was released in 1999 and then on into the year 2000, you know, how upset so many people were about that book. And now a lot of those people who were upset about it really respect and admire him. So things really turned around uh, pretty quickly. I cannot believe that next year marks 20 years of Triumph of the Moon. Wow. Time flies when you're having witchy fun. Next person on my list is Judica Isles. Judica has written a ton of books on witchcraft and spells and, and magic over the years. So in that sense, uh, you know, she's an influential author. But she's also an editor for Samuel Weiser and picks books that they publish. Uh, so like Alicia, a few entries before, you know, she kind of opens that door to certain people and certain writers. You know, I've, Weiser and Llewellyn are not the only two pagan publishers in the world. I don't even know if, if they're still the two biggest. I know Llewellyn is, but I'm not sure where Weiser stands. But there's something about both of those publishing houses that I think conveys a level of legitimacy to writers. I'm not saying that people who write for other things are not legitimate, but 
there's still kind of a prestige with the ankh on the spine and the moon on the spine. And uh, so Judica is important in that sense. Also, if Judica and Alicia Gallo ever got together and did a podcast, it would be the best thing. Uh, sometimes they speak together at festivals to people who are interested in submitting books and listening to them talk about their experiences as editors. It's just really fun and fascinating. I need to try to get at least one of them on this show one of these days. Of course, that would you know require me to think about the show in advance, but maybe we'll get there. So my next person on the list uh, is somebody that a lot of pagans don't like, and they don't necessarily always like his contributions to modern paganism and witchcraft. However, you can't deny the contribution, which is why he's on the list. So Aidan Kelly is one of the founders of Nerug, which is the new reformed Orthodox Order of the Golden Dawn, which it was an early American witchcraft tradition uh, stitched together through things like Charles Leland's Aradia and uh, Margaret Murray's witch cult in Western Europe. And they basically created a new tradition using what they had. Uh, Aidan Kelly would also go on to help found Covenant of the Goddess. But really, the thing that Aidan is probably most well-known for is coming up with the names Ostara, Mabon, and Litha for the equinoxes and for the solstice of mid of summer. You know, he's explained why he's chosen Maybon. You can look it up if you want. I've never really felt like his explanation was all that good, but I cannot argue with the power of this word that he chose to use for the fall equinox because everyone says it. You could buy things that say Maybon all over them. When you say the word Maybon, it suggests the autumn equinox at this point. Uh, so whether or not we like it or not, we're kind of stuck with it, I think, more so than anything else. So uh, every time that we say those words, Maybon, Ostara, Ostara, and Litha, we owe a tip of the hat or grimace to Aidan Kelly. So, you know, he's definitely made a mark on modern paganism because of those things. For the record, I will say that Ostara, though, is a completely inspired name for the spring equinox. It's a great name. You know, there's a goddess named Eostara. Uh, Ostara, you know, might have been where we kind of get East, um, Easter and April from. It's a great name. It's a great name. Uh, for the record, there are no celebrations of the equinoxes in the historical record. So there's no historical Ostara and certainly not an historical Mabon. But, you know, we create our own traditions. Next on my list was Anne Newkirk Niven. Anne is the publisher of Witches and Pagans, which is kind of the last American pagan, uh, pagan magazine with a really wide circulation and in stores. I don't know if it really matters in this day and age whether or not a pagan magazine is in Barnes & Noble or not, but I still think it's pretty cool that it's there. Uh, she's also the founder of Witches and Pagans Online, which was known as Witches or a Pagan Square at some point. So Anne has done quite a bit over the years because of the magazine. She also is the publisher of Sage Woman magazine. I don't read Sage Woman. It's probably not a surprise. I was reminded, though, that Anne also does that. But, you know, she's been publishing pagan magazines, uh, I think, 
for most of my adult life. And those magazines have been great places for information sharing and to launch writers and things. And certainly Pagan Square, probably the biggest overall pagan site all in one on the internet. And there are dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of bloggers at that particular site. Next on my list, Christopher Penzak. I realize I'm running out of time because, wow, I can ramble. Christopher Penzak, you know, founder of the Temple of Witchcraft, writer of award-winning books, probably the best-selling witch author of the last 15 years. Uh, I think Christopher's a pretty big deal, and he's often out on the road doing things. I, I think Christopher's great. I've hung out with him many times. He's always someone who's super supportive of everyone else, and he doesn't need to be. Uh, you know, he's he's just a great guy and been super influential and important. You know, a lot of my new favorite younger witches studied with Christopher or were influenced by Christopher, so his uh, legacy is going to last for quite a long time. Next up, Silver Raven Wolf, another one of those names that many people hate. I think that's really silly. Chris, uh, Silver Ravenwolf's To Ride a Silver Broomstick is still one of the best Witchcraft 101 books ever published. Fantastic writer. You know, I don't think people get enough credit just for being good writers. doesn't matter if you think the contents are good, but the writing is most excellent. And for a lot of us who grew up in Generation X, I mean, Silver Ravenwolf was our writer in the way that people who are part of the baby boomer generation grew up on Mark Wadler's drawing down the moon and Starhawk's The Spiral Dance. We grew up on Silver Ravenwolf's books and really To Ride a Silver Broomstick is the best of those books. To Ride a Silver Broomstick has sold several hundred thousand copies, which for a pagan book is just, you know, huge sales. Uh, people have unrealistic expectations, I think, sometimes of how well these books do or don't do. Uh, but Silver is a best-selling witch author, for sure. And after several years of not writing, she started to write again, which I think is pretty cool. You don't have to like somebody for them to be on this list. You just have to realize that they've been influential. Next up on the list is Morpheus Ravenna and uh, Morpheus and I do not always particularly get along, <laughs> but I, you know, I can't deny uh, how influential she's been. And she's one of those people who may not be influential in your pagan community, but I think she's really influential in a bigger sense. One of the things that she really did was she changed pagan publishing with her book of the Great Queen, which was dedicated to the Morrigan, which is something that she got put together on Kickstarter and raised an incredible amount of money with and produced a really beautiful book as a result. She's also one of the leading voices in the devotional polytheist movement, which is gaining steam. And she's somebody whose name I hear when I go to festivals, you know, Morpheus, Morpheus, Morpheus. You know, when people are talking about you across the country, you're pretty influential. Like somebody in North Carolina saying, I want to go and get a tattoo from Morpheus, Morpheus Ravenna in Berkeley, California. I mean, that's that's influence. And then she started Koru, which is her priesthood of the Morgan. Uh, so really influential, great ritualist. If you ever get a chance to see her do 
a ritual. Maxine Sanders, of course, is on my list. Maxine, along with her late ex-husband, Alex Sanders, are really sort of the architects and founders of the tradition known as the Alexandrian tradition. When I was in London in May, and I went to Atlantis Bookstore, and I was talking to Geraldine Beskin, who's the owner of the store, she told me that Alex and Maxine basically revitalized and helped save Wiccan witchcraft in the UK during the 60s and early 70s. That up until their involvement, things had been kind of trending downward and it seemed as if no one was really interested in it anymore and they brought it back to life. And for that, you know, we owe them a debt of thanks and it makes Maxine someone who's extremely influential. Also, uh, she's still touring, she still releases books here and again. And she put together a book called the Alexander's and Sand Alexander Alexander's Notebook um, earlier this year, which was a reproduction of one of Alex's magical notebooks. It's a beautiful, beautiful book, and you can get it through Hellfire Club Books. Not cheap, but it's totally worth it. Daniel Schulke is one of the founders of Three Hands Press. Three Hands Press is probably mostly known for their books on traditional witchcraft and they uh, published a lot of the Chumbly material which now is of course out of print and super super expensive but I think one of the things that Three Hands Press did along with uh, Peter Gray at Scarlet Imprint is they made books beautiful again and if you are at all involved in the traditional witchcraft community you know that there are these small books that come out now that have limited print runs of just a, maybe a few hundred copies. Then they sell for 80 to $200 or whatever. And they're really beautiful. They're, they're small works of art. They're all hand-bound. Troy Books is some of those, does some of those things too. And it's become a renaissance of printed books. And I think Three Hands Press has a lot to do with that, which is why uh, Daniel's on this list as one of the founders of that publishing house. Again, it's not something that a lot of people maybe are involved with, uh, but for those who are, it's a pretty big deal. And I think, though, too, that publishers like Scarlet Imprint and Three Hands Press, their influence has trickled down to some of the larger publishers. Last year, Llewellyn published a collection of John Dee's magical manuscripts. It's huge, huge two-volume set. It's uh, beautiful and hardcover. It was limited to 1,500 copies. And I think a lot of that is because of the influence of these other presses. Llewellyn released the book of Oberon two, three years ago. Uh, Daniel Harms was one of the editors who I think just does really, really fantastic work. And again, it was this beautiful book that I'm not sure would have been published 15 years ago without the influence of these smaller presses releasing these little works of art. I know Weiser released one on Crowley's Toth Tarot deck. Again, hardcover, color pages, beautiful, beautiful books. On my list, of course, uh, was Starhawk, who I spent a lot of time talking about at the beginning, so I'm not going to go back to that. As we near the end, a couple of, we have two more entries, as I said. I think there ended up being 28 or 29 people on my list of 25, because I'm a liar. Uh, one, some of that's due to couples, and in this case, it's Ren Walker and Fritz Young, who were the founders of The Witch's Voice, 
And if you don't know paganism before the witch's voice, it was impossible to find other pagans. Basically, if you wanted to find other pagans, you would go through a magazine, which had just a few, you know, thousand copies printed and distributed, and then you would find addresses, and maybe you would write to somebody in your local area. I mean, there was no internet. It was, you know, for, you know, for a long time, and even when there was an internet, we didn't necessarily all connect. The Witch's Voice, which Ren and Fritz founded, was where people connected. It's still where people connect today. If you were to ask, you know, somebody, hey, how do I find out about things in my local community? You tell them to go to the Witch's Voice. I think its influence had slipped a little bit in the age of social media, but it's still a place where I go. It's still a place where I try to look things up. Um, you know, there are listings of groups at the Witch's Voice. There are listings of individuals. There are listings of events, and there are hundreds, thousands of events all across the United States and in Europe and Australia. And it's also where you can find shops, which are another place to find people. And they also just publish articles and things. It's still a really great site. Uh, it changed everything. Um, it was one of the biggest game changers, I think, in paganism. And last, but certainly not least, is Oberon Zell, who was one of the founders of the Church of All Worlds, and is mostly usually credited with being the first person to use the term pagan as a way of describing all of us who are probably listening to this podcast and reading blogs and reading books and everything. Uh, you know, for a while, ceremonial magicians and witches and, and druids and other sorts just didn't all hang out together. And then Oberon started publishing in The Green Egg, and he said, all these people are pagans. We all share this thing. Uh, also, Oberon's Church of All Worlds is one of those, you know, kind of U.S.-born pagan traditions, really unique in that it used science fiction when it was started as uh, some of their core mythology and for some of their ideas. So hugely influential. Also, Oberon today sort of looks like uh, Dumbledore from Harry Potter, which is kind of cool. He was also on Check It Out with Dr. Stephen Brule, which is a show on Adult Swim, which if he didn't know what he was getting into, but if you get a chance to see that clip, you should totally look it up. Um, on my list, I had had people, you know, probably deserve to be on my list, but I just didn't put them on for whatever reason. Um, I started with Phyllis Karat, and that's a, one person that people always say, why wasn't Phyllis on your list? And it's a really good question. I'd really, really like her books. I think I didn't put her on my list because she hasn't published anything since 2004. And, you know, it's kind of a snapshot of right now. Certainly, you know, 10 years ago, she would have been on that list but I just don't feel like she has been as active. Orion Foxwood is somebody who probably deserves to be on this list, though I didn't put him on there. Uh, great teacher, super active, involved in things. Gemma Gary uh, is one of the leading lights of traditional witchcraft. Her books are really great. I'm not sure how popular traditional witchcraft is, and when your books are limited to those small print runs, I'm not sure how much influence that you really carry, but um, I think she's an important name. John Michael Greer uh, great druid, great teacher, great writer. Graham King is um, the the man who runs the uh, Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boss Castle, England, and one of the leading lights behind Troy Books, I think. Uh, so I thought he probably deserved to be on my list. And, you know, I just sort of ran out of room. 
Diana Paxson is another one. Diana helped found the SCA. She's one of the leading voices in heathenry today. I left her off the list because I'm just not sure how many heathen pagans there are, people who identify that way. I mean, there, I think there are just still more witches than anything else. Um, and because of that, witches are going to have a bigger footprint and a little bit more influence. I know some people get really angry about that, but, you know, I wasn't trying to sugarcoat the list in any way. I was just trying to show how I think and where I think the pagan community is at this point. I could be wrong. And then Laura tempest Zakroff feels a little self-serving because she and I wrote a book together and, and, you know, we're pretty good friends. My wife used to really, really um, kind of idolize her because she was a famous belly dancer. Uh, but Laura is somebody whose art is everywhere. Uh, she writes, she blogs, she dances. Uh, she's all over. She tours all the time. I, I think is a terrific witch, and I think she has kind of a different take on things, and which I think will become even more influential throughout time. And then also Dorothy Morrison, which is another name that people kept asking me about. And yes, and I like Dorothy quite a bit. She's really fun to hang out with. And yeah, I mean, you, you could make a, a you know an argument for all those people. Younger uh, witches that I think, you know, in 10 years might be on such a list, Devin Hunter, Storm Fairy Wolf, Thorn Mooney, maybe Jason Mankey. I don't know, uh, but those are some of the names. So that was my list. Thank you so much for, for listening. I know that I have rambled on for quite a while um, going all over this. But, you know, it was, it's a fun exercise. I'm certainly not the last word on anything. It was just my interpretation, my idea of who the 25 most important living pagans were, you know, I encourage others to write similar lists. I encourage others to suggest names to me in the, uh, you know, blog comments or whatever else. If you want to say, Jason, you're an idiot, that's fine too. Uh, you know, I'm not really going to disagree with you. There you go. So again, thanks for listening tonight. I'm Jason <laughs> Mangy. This is Raise the Horns Radio. As always, uh, thanks to Witch School and Pagans tonight for hosting this show and i'll see you in a couple of weeks good night <laughs> good night jason you're not an idiot but he did say when people started commenting on his facebook page about what they agreed and disagreed with he's like that's what the comments are for so go to that blog on patheos pagans and uh and and leave your comments because i kind of see it as you know jason's not the end all be all this is just his opinion and Go ahead and check it out. Go ahead and, and, and consider his thing. Now, I'm saying that, but I'm like chatting with him on, on Facebook saying, you know, when you talked about people who were the, you know, the second generation um, and, and then you talked about Silver Raven Wolf because she's still living, right? But one person who passed from the second generation or arguably maybe even the third, um, him mentioned Scott Cunningham. Scott Cunningham in the book, The Guide for the Solitary Practitioner, is what made Wicca and witchcraft and paganism open to everyone. Because I remember when I was younger and I was trying to learn all this stuff, is like, well, you have to find a teacher. I was waiting for Gandalf or Merlin to show up, you know. <laughs> but you have to make your own path. Ha! I led into the next. I led in to the next show. Hey, it's Pamit. I am here too. I haven't been 
doing a lot of stuff this summer too. So please forgive me. And as we head into uh, the fall, um, I plan on being here a lot more. So uh, I miss you. I see Darren in chat. Mystical Carter, Mystical Carter, he 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 called into and Lawrence, thank you for joining me. Um, you don't have to be here live, but it's fun. No, we can have conversations and we can we can chat back and forth. And if you want to call up and and say, hey, Pam, it hush and get to your guests already, you can do that. Um, tonight we were talking. I was talking a little bit about uh, uh, the next guest my guest for tonight, John Anastasio. Um, he wrote a book, Reclaiming Your Sacred Path. Um, it's, I've been looking at it, and I'm very excited about it. I'm also very excited to have him uh, coming on board to be one of our new hosts. And at this point, we're looking at it on Sunday. He'll be alternating with the unnamed path. You know, we've got the sacred path. Reclaiming your sacred path, and then the unnamed path thing going on on Sunday. I think it's, I think it's meant to be. It is meant to be. Um, he also has music, but I did not ask him, and I feel bad. Maybe we can do something during the show to get some of his music here, so he'll be able to hopefully share his music with us as well. But in the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and throw on Dave the Bard and uh, Lunasa. And we will be joining, John will be joining us after this. Oh. 
kind of hid and you had to look through it to say that my father passed. And then, mm-hmm. you know, being a Scorpio, I was like annoyed that people didn't pay attention to my subtle hint. And, and then I thought, you know, I'm going to have to let people know. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's, I, I posted that my father passed on, on Sunday and um, it's just really, this is this last week, not even a week, John, this last mm-hmm. week has been really tough because, you know, I, I lost my father and the Corellian tradition lost somebody who was very important to the tradition and also very mm-hmm. important to you. And I, I want to express my condolences to you and, and let you talk a little bit about Wendy, uh, right Reverend Wendy LaJoy. Yeah. Thank you, Pam. I, and before I do that, I, I want to again say to you, uh, I am so sorry for your loss. Um, losing a parent is thank you. extremely difficult. And um I can imagine that this has been a difficult week for you, and uh, I know there's a lot of us who know you and care very much about you, who are thinking about you, and uh, you're in our prayers, and and I hope you know that. Don't get me to start crying on this show, man. Okay. <laughs> well, no, I know, appreciate okay. it. I really do. I I posted my thing up there about my dad, and. I, you know, I posted it real fast before I went in to do my physical therapy and I came out and there was like, you know, like 90 something comments and I am just floored. I'm still, I, I am humbled. I, I, I can't, there's no words I can say with how much I, I wish I could like hug every single person who's, who's, you know, sent condolences and, it it means a lot to me because again, you know, with me being a, you know, a Scorpio, I'm like, you know, nobody ever pays attention to me and I don't like the attention, but then we get annoyed if we don't get the attention, <laughs> you know, well, it's right. one of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, All of those, you a hug right now too. Go ahead. So. Aww. Uh, those people would love to give you a hug right now as well. Um, um, I love hugs. I love hugs. I, and I got a chance to, did we, I'm trying to think, we hugged, right? I got a chance to meet you when uh, the yes. illustration, and, and I am not Corellian. I'm not anti-Corellian. I'm just, I kind of look at myself as like the cousin of the Corellians. I work here with the <laughs> pagans tonight, and I, I have a lot of, I'm not Corellian, but I have a lot of Corellian friends, man. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but and yes, we, the illustration was right down the road, and that's yeah. where you and I met. That's right. That's right. And that was that was great. And uh, it was one of the things about the illustrations that's really wonderful um, is you know it's a it's a very deep ritual that um, brings us in the one that we do in the spring uh, brings us. Uh, into a celebration of the ancestors and calling down their assistance for us for the coming year, as well as honoring them. 
And um, so it's a, it's a very powerful ritual, but it also brings together people who don't see each other very often because we're scattered all over the country. I'm in Whidbey Island, Washington, which is kind of close to Seattle. And uh, a lot of us are on the East Coast. We're in the Midwest. We're around the world. We're in Australia. We're, we're everywhere. Um, and the illustration, either virtually or physically, brings us together, which is really special. And you were talking about Lady Windy, and that is actually the last time I saw her. Um, and mm-hmm. in fact, she Corellian I ever met face to face back in, I think it was about 2010 or 11. She was very, I'm trying to find the right words. She was, her position within the tradition was, um, she, she touched almost everyone, didn't she? She, she, was almost like the, you know, welcome to the tradition. And she was your mentor specifically. Yeah. I think Uh, you could honestly say she did. Yeah. And actually she was my first mentor. I mean, the, my, my journey in, into, uh, into the Wiccan path was, began with, um, I'll talk about it more when we get to talking about the book, because that's really what my journey, you know, I described my journey in the book, but but the first class I ever took from which school, whichschool.com, was uh, Living the Wiccan Life, which is also a book now. Um, but at that time, it was an online class of about 48 lessons. Took you pretty much the traditional day to decide, you know, are you a witch? Are you a Wiccan? Um, and if so, um, you know, you can work through that class and you can find out if it resonates for you. If, as Carlos Castaneda says, it's a path that for you has heart. And there was no formal mentor uh, assigned to me for that class. I was just kind of working through it. But I started poking around and finding emails I could send, you know, places I could send emails to with questions. And um, it was during that year um, that, you know, for me, I sort of, I I reclaimed, I I found my sacred path again through that work. Um, And I I was just looking through a journal from June June 3rd, 2009. I had an email from Lady Wendy that um, I had sent her a bunch of questions, like, you know, a laundry list of things on email. And she said, as soon as I get admitted, I'm going to read all of this. But right now I've got my mind wrapped around other things. Um, and one of the questions I had in that email, was, I was really at a crossroads. I said, you know, am I, am I do, is this really, is this real? You know, am I on the right path? And <laughs> she her was to give more detail than this, but she was, she was writing a quick email because I think she heard the message in it. Um, and she said, her email, I'm looking at it now, it says, oh, for sure you are on the right path. And she said, once again, go with what is in your heart and you cannot go wrong. And that was back after that. Um, you know, and now, uh, you know, I, I guess it was 2012, I completed my third degree um, clergy program with the tradition and um, became a high priest. And I can honestly say that that was the moment when I just sort of, you know, got myself back together and started walking forward. And she was tremendously, you know, influential in that. The other thing was she was the first Corellian I ever met face to face. I I went, I was traveling on business and I was in Boston at the time that um, Lord Don was running the world of witches museum there. And um, so I contacted Wendy and I knew she lived there. And I said, I said, Hey, I'm going to be in your neighborhood. You know, can I stop by? She said, I'll meet you at the museum. So 
There was. I was at the museum with Lord Don, with Lady Wendy, and it was um, it was a tremendous experience to meet these people and to really say, okay, not only not only is what I'm learning working for me, but I really this is this is my team, this is my tribe, um, and it was a really wonderful experience. That's my first memory of her, really. You know, and and your tribes. That's I I like to use uh, I like to use that <laughs> that word. I one of my one of my students in Texas used to love to say, "Your vibe attracts your tribe." And yeah, I, I, I know that that she wasn't the originator of that that uh, phrase, but I, I like that concept. And mm-hmm. I, I have to tell you. Um, I when I was reading your book, I got like little glimpses, and you and I'm I'm smiling so big now from one thing that you said. I got little glimpses of of Carlos Casanato in your book, uh-huh. <laughs> and then you mentioned it, and and not a lot of people know about the the teachings of Don Juan, and mm-hmm. I had an ex that was very fearful of that because it's not an easy path and he he felt it was a he felt it was a destructive path for him. Do you mind talking a little mm-hmm. about Carlos Casanata and it did 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 that type of the the teachings of Don Juan bring you to 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 Wicca uh, which Well, it's it's one of many things. Um the first so I I grew up I grew up Roman Catholic. Um, and I never went to Catholic school and, you know, my, my sister and I both went to, um, Sunday school and then what they called confraternity in our, in our parish. It was every Tuesday evening. Um, and, uh, we, you know, that's where we studied the catechism and all the rest of that and things about milk bottles turning black if you're bad and all that kind of stuff. And so I, um, Growing up, it never made sense to me that this one group of people out of all of humanity was going to be saved, right? And yeah. as I got older, you know, I started to I started to really kind of look at it with an open mind. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of beauty. I mean, I took a ton out of being a Catholic. I love ritual because of it. Uh, you know, I love the music. I love sacred music. And there, I, I was very fortunate to have in my teens a parish priest who was a wonderful man. And one of the things that he did was, you know, he ran, he put together musicals that he would cast us in. And so we put on, uh, you know, Hello, Dolly, and uh, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And, and I got to sing. I got to get on stage, which I love to do. And so I, I had a blast. But, but in terms of the spiritual path, something wasn't right. And, you know, I found myself reading Aleister Crowley, and I found myself getting a hold of pendulums, and I found myself really saying there's something else out there. I could feel it. I knew it was out there. And at one point, my father, I remember being, I was like 16 or 17, and, and, uh, and it was a Sunday morning. My father said, um, you know, we're going to, you go to church, take the envelope and put it in the basket. I said, how come you're not going? And he said, well, I don't need some guy getting in between me and God. I went, huh. There you go. Let me think about it. Let me think about that for a minute. If he doesn't, then why do I? Um, And, you know, one of the things, and this is interesting, is that for him, a lot of the mystery and the the depth of, of the experience of going to church was when it was in Latin. 
right? Because he spoke Italian and it was really uh, meaningful to him. And so when it went to English, it sort of took something out of it. But anyway, so I, that got me. And the next thing I knew, um, you know, I, I found something called the Baha'i faith, which is, again, I got a I ton out of being a Baha'i. I was I a Baha'i for 13 Baha'i. years. Yep. Wow. Um, I have a great debt of gratitude to the people that I know from that community. Um, but, and, and the fact that I'm not a Baha'i now is simply the fact that um, I, one of the values that I have, and I talk about this, I got this in my shamanic training, which brings me back to Castaneda, which was your original question, um, that the whole notion in my book and what I'm really about in all the work that I try to do is to help people regain their spiritual autonomy that we have, we come here with a purpose. We forget what that purpose is through the process of birth and childhood, where we get trained to be what somebody should be in the world until we have to unlearn a lot of that to find out who we truly are. Mm -hmm. And it's in finding out who we truly are that we express what we're here for. And that has, there's an inner journey to that and an outer journey to that. And, and so Carlos Castaneda was an anthropologist who studied the uh, Yaqui Indians' shamanic practices in Mexico. And he wrote the books about Don Juan and about, um, about his experiences there. A lot of people will say they're fictionalized. They probably are. But from a shamanic perspective, everything he talks about is real. You know, shape-shifting is real. You know, can I physically turn into a wolf? Mm-hmm. No. Can I go on a shamanic journey and turn into a wolf? Absolutely. And so, mm-hmm. you know, their demonic work is really tough work, to your point. It's, it's a tough path because in order to be a shaman, and I don't call myself a shaman, I use some shamanic healing techniques, but if somebody's going to call me one, okay, thank you, but, but I don't think of myself that way. I think of myself as somebody mm-hmm. who does what's needed when someone is, pre- is presenting some issues. But in any case, the, um, the shamanic path, a shaman will go through a dark night of the soul and have to really confront their shadow. And mm-hmm. they will come out of in, you know, in varying, in, in varying degrees of okay, right? But if they come right. out of it, if they learn that their shadow has to teach them, they come out able to walk between the worlds and journey on behalf of themselves and others to get guidance and help and healing from spirit. And there's one quote I have in the book from Castaneda that is really about this finding your path. It is one of the best things that I've ever read. And he says, a path is only a path and there is no affront to oneself or to others in dropping it if that is what your heart tells you. Look at every path closely and deliberately. Try it as many times as you think necessary and then ask yourself alone one question. Does this path have a heart? If it does, the path is good. If it doesn't, it's of no use. Now, let me go back to what Lady Wendy said to me, which was, once again, you go with your, what is in your heart, and you cannot go wrong. Fundamentally, it's, your heart will tell you if the path you're on is true for you, um, and that's really your best guide. Hmm. It's very true. So did that get it? When I wish I. When you... <laughs> well, I want to dig a little bit more, but but I I I um 
I wish I'd been able to. I, I got to meet Wendy at uh, Lady Wendy at Lustration, and I worked with mm-hmm. her a little bit. We had a, a a show for a bit, Meet the Elders, and I don't think that the podcasting brought out who she. I think she felt uh, stilted because I can tell from mm-hmm. people's response about from from her that she she was a, a very warm and giving person, and I. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think she felt as comfortable with podcasting and uh, I'm not, but, but if you want to get, if you want to go and look through our, um, our archives, you can find some, some of the, the shows that she did the meet the elders before. Uh, Great. Yeah, and that, that's probably that what talking about path, you know, it, it's it, this podcasting path must not have been for her. <laughs> so, right. It's not right. for everyone. Right. Um, I I want to talk a, a little bit about the the Baha'i faith because not a lot of people know Baha'i. Baha'i is is one of those. It's an a- Abrahamic religion that a lot of people don't realize is part of the Abrahamic you know family. And right. my one of my daughters, my youngest daughter was introduced into Baha'i by uh, one of her best friends and their family. And they're, they're very, very, very Baha'i. They, they went like on Baha'i mm-hmm. missions and they're very active in the Baha'i uh, faith. But, but and every time that they had like a, a, a holy day or with a, with a feast and all, I was always invited and their books, the prayer books had like uh I like some, sometimes I like to to read more from the Buddhist and other times, you know, from, from Wicca, Pagan, mm-hmm. but their prayer books always had a prayer. They had prayers. Okay. And you know this, if it's, you know, depending on what the feast is, they have the prayer for, for the Baha'i about the feast. But then the book mm-hmm. has a, 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 a subsequent, you know, Wiccan, or Buddhist, or you know, another faith prayer that goes along with that. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm, I'm, you know, literally preaching to the choir. <laughs> you know that <laughs> because you know, isn't the Baha'i faith um, very okay? For one thing, one of the things I love about the Baha'i faith is there is one race, the human race. Right. Um. And and. I have never seen such an amazing group of, of people from different backgrounds and different uh, colored skin and mm-hmm. that, that are just so it, it's, there's not like a clump of one, one hue skin here and, and mm-hmm. one <laughs> it, it's, it's a very open and accepting and, and loving uh, environment very inclusive and that goes mm-hmm. along with with your beliefs as well uh d- did that sh- you know you were Baha'i for 13 years how did that shape you mm-hmm. into this this path how did that well so so the interesting thing well i mean you're right about uh, everything you said and and basically the Baha'i faith came out of um islam the same way that Christianity came out of Judaism, right? So um, the founder of the Baha'i faith uh, was born in Iran, and um, the you know the, the religion began in Iran, uh, but it is not Islam, and it is not a sect of Islam. It is an independent world religion, and it's 
so basically their beliefs are there's one God and anybody who's worshiping God. And so think I'm using the male pronoun, but I mean source, right? Um, there is one right. source and, and anybody who's worshiping source in any form is worshiping the same thing. Uh, there really right. is only one, one religion in the large sense, and that's the religion of source. And you can follow it in, in many, many different ways. They have a particular way. The third thing is, as you said, there's one human family. And, and not only is that a sort of nice heartwarming belief, but um, in the, uh, the 1950s, the, the grandson of the founder um, made it very, really unequivocally clear that racism was the most challenging issue facing this nation and really mm-hmm. affecting the world. And as a result, mm-hmm. there's, a tremendous, uh, there's a tremendous desire and emphasis on eradicating racism um, and not punishing mm-hmm. racists as much as really educating people to, um, and, and giving people the experience of the incredible richness of human diversity. And that's really, yeah. so, I mean, all of that resonated for me. And, you know, I found that in Wicca, you know, in, in particularly in, and in the Karelian tradition, and exactly, it feels exactly, it feels seamless. I mean, there is, um, you know, people are very autonomous. They have their own, everybody picks their own way of serving, right? But there isn't any question that the values are extremely consistent. So I wouldn't say that necessarily, you know, I, I think that um, I, found, um, I found paganism after my Baha'i experience, actually almost mm-hmm. during my Baha'i experience. I had some uh, experiences working with uh, a Native American friend of mine, uh, learning certain rituals and ceremonies and, and you know, the cosmology of Native American spirituality from his perspective of the Lakota point of view. And that really sort of took my mind out of the whole Abrahamic mindset and into the indigenous mindset. Um, And that started on the shamanic studies, which I continued with the foundation for shamanic studies um, after I left the Baha'i faith in 1984-ish. Lakota, interesting, Sue. I I lived up in South Dakota, the Lakota and Ogallala. Um, that's you know that's their their area. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I find that very interesting. I got to tell you, this is kind of an anecdote about Baha'i. My um, mm-hmm. the the family, my daughter's best friend. She's uh, I, I, her mom's going to hate me for saying this, but m- most people would classify her as, as mixed. Um, and the reason her mother would hate me for saying that because they fight so hard to uh, to erase, to eradicate racism and all. Her mother was known for if you go to the to the doctor and they have a, a thing to check about what race she's she's like, where's human race? She's very outspoken. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Um, what what's really funny is is her. Her parent, the her parents are much older. They're close to you know they're much older, and the father was a hippie, and the mother mm-hmm. was a Black Panther. So wow, just the interesting. That's perfect. <laughs> interest, it is. It, it it's you know that's part of why why Kathy was like, why does it say race here? You know why does it say uh-huh. human race? It's human. 
Um, but uh, I, I find that very interesting. I did not know that, John. This is really cool. I didn't know that you were that uh, you would follow the Baha'i path. So I did. Um, the a lot of people don't know as we talk about Baha'i. I just feel it important to to bring up. You said that it originated in Iran. And my understanding, I haven't checked on it, you know, recently, but I know that the people who follow that path in Iran are facing a genocide or have been facing a genocide yes. because it's not Islam. Uh, it's from Islam, yeah. but it's not don't Islam. Know the so, yeah. yeah, I, I don't, don't know the current. I know that um, it has flared up many times since the beginning of the faith. In the beginning, the persecution was very severe, um, and it has flared up a number of times, um, and, uh, you know, with people losing their lives and their homes and their families, and it, it has gotten very serious at times. I don't know what the state of it is now. That's something to, to you know, bring to everyone's attention. Uh, I think there was a reason for for that to be <laughs> brought up on the show. Okay, so so this is a pretty interesting path. You go from Roman Catholicism to Baha'i, a little bit of Lakota, uh, Carlos Castaneda, and then boom. I I like your reading. You, you where were you at at a bookstore or something, and you saw like the Wicca for dummies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. So the uh, the other part of this is that, you know, I, I mentioned that I had a, uh, while I was a Baha'i, one of the things that um, that I'm very grateful for from that experience is I went to, through a graduate program at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, um, which was a highly innovative uh, program in higher education. Uh, and it was about, and, and what I learned to do was be a coach to college teachers to uh, help them improve the quality of their teaching performance. And I, and I got my doctorate in education there. Um, and that turned into a 35-year corporate career, 40-year corporate career in leadership development, organizational development, learning and development. And so I have, you know, I've been, I did that work for a long time. And the way that I always thought of my mission because of my spiritual path, I, I, so I think I, thought, I always thought of my life as like a set of railroad tracks. I had this corporate job, but then I had the values and the spiritual connection that drove me and motivated me where I got my inspiration. And, you know, mm -hmm. that, that also is where my music comes from. It's where my book came from. It's where all of that, all of it's all comes from that, that same connection to source. But my mission was not to become some corporate geek. My mission was to humanize the workplace. And so I was using behavioral science techniques powered by internally my own beliefs and my spiritual learning to really connect with people and help them become their best authentic self, whether that was as a leader or, you know, just in the specific work they were doing or whatever it was. And so I became a facilitator and a coach. Um, and I, and I pretty much do that in every venue, you know, every, every sort of aspect of life. 
But what happened was in 2008, as we know, the economy um, uh, took a nosedive, 2007, 2008. And the work that yeah. I was doing, which was very, which was very personal growth oriented, you know, the radio show that I did, we'll talk about this at some point, um, for six months this year, um, was called Reclaiming Your Sacred Path. And, I, and the subtitle, what I always said about it was that it's an hour of conversation about growth and the human spirit. And that's what the show is going to be about in the fall when we started up. But um, before I got to the place of being able to say that, um, my work shifted. I didn't lose my job. I was very fortunate. Materially, I was very fortunate. um, And I'm very grateful for that as well. But sort of the light went out, you know, it was kind of like, I always compare it to when the, when the Kansas scenes in the wizard of Oz, you know, when everything goes from, you know, Emerald, emerald and beautiful to gray. And that was how it felt. And, you know, I mean, I was married with kids and that was all fine. I loved them and it was all great. Um, but I was not great. I was not great on the inside because I could no longer pursue that mission of humanizing the workplace. I was now being the training director. People would look at me and say, you know, there are people who would love to have that job. And I know that. And, and I wasn't ungrateful mm-hmm. for the job. But I need, but what it told me was when I, when things went sideways that way, I looked for my spiritual practice to sustain me, and I realized I didn't have it because I had poured it all into the work that I was doing, which was like a ministry mm. to me. And so I said, mm-hmm. I, you know, I looked back on everything I had done, the shamanic journey work, the meditation, the, the study. I had worked my way through A Course in Miracles a couple of times um, and really got a ton out of that. Um, but I, and I said, well, I could just, and I started trying to meditate. I started trying to do some of those exercises again, but it was like the campfire was out. And yeah. so I was at a bookstore here in Seattle at Magnuson Park and I'm walking around. I go to the metaphysical section as I always did, right? Crystal shops and metaphysical bookstores. That was, that's always been my thing. And I found this book. It was, you know, Wicca and which the complete idiot's guide to Wicca and witchcraft. And I had always avoided Wicca. I had always avoided two things, actually, in my life. One was I had always avoided Wicca and witchcraft because I thought, you know, being a good Catholic, that's not okay. Um, And then I also had avoided Reiki. And, of course, now I'm a Reiki master. But, you know, I want to – we're going to talk about Reiki. What's that? We're going to talk about Reiki. I I, – we're going to talk about Reiki later, but go ahead. You picked up the book. I picked up the book and I started thumbing through it. And I realized, you know, I always, I always thought of the dummies books or the complete idiot books as snarky, right? I, I, I didn't like the idea. It sort of offended me, my Libra or something. Um, and so I, uh, I'm, I'm looking at this book and all of a sudden I realized, no, this is actually a thing. This is actually real. And I start reading it, and I'm realizing that everything that she's saying, uh, you know, and talking about what Wicca is, about that there's only one source, that that everything is energy Mm -hmm. different only in its vibration. You can manage your energy, and that's really what it's about. It's about focusing. Magic is not anything more than focusing and directing energy toward an intention. And I I said, I wonder what would happen if I just took this book home and did everything it says. And I worked my way through it. My family thought I was out of my mind. Um, but I worked my way through it. All of a sudden, there's sage burning in the house again. There's incense. There's, you know, bells, books, and candles. There's all these things showing up. <laughs> and 
I feel this is not a joke. This I started feeling better. I started feeling yeah. connected again. I, you know, and and I thought, you know, I got to get more of this somehow. And of course, now I know. Sitting in Seattle, I was surrounded by pagans. I was I was surrounded by people who were into this stuff. <laughs> At that point, you know, I was a suburban corporate guy who was finding his sacred path. And I'm going. I'm sitting here and go. What do I? Where do I go? So I start looking online, and I find which school. I went. Well, boy, that's literal. Um, and so. I, I checked it out and I went again. I went, wait a minute. When you when you really look at this, you really look at what which school is and what it has. And this is back in 2009, so it was nowhere near as robust as it is today. It's an incredible resource. And I said, you know, being a lifelong educator, and part of what I part of what my work was was to create learning programs that people could work through on their own. We were doing it with books right. at the time, creating self materials. And, you know, so for me, the idea of online learning about Wicca, I had, I had no barrier to that at all. Um, because I knew that ultimately what, what it meant was that I needed to do three things. I needed to read the information and learn it and get it. I needed to do the exercises they tell me to do and see how that works. And when I start getting confused, I need to find people to talk to and get coached and mentored. And so you know, I start. I, I joined. I, I got a lifetime membership on on which school, and I started looking around and I poked around and I did you know a couple of little classes, you know, short classes, one or two lesson classes, and then I found living the wicked life, which I referenced earlier. Um, and I also saw the clergy programs, but I thought you know when I was a Baha'i, I acted really in a clergy role because I was on local spiritual assemblies, which is the equivalent of clergy in the Baha'i faith for years. Uh-huh. And I know how to do, I know how to play that role, but I said, I'm not going to even think about stepping into a leadership kind of role in this. I know what I'm doing until I really actually mm-hmm. know it's for me that I actually have something to offer. And so that was my reasoning for working through, essentially, you, know, you mentioned Scott Cunningham earlier, um, you know, the solitary Wicca um, book. This, yeah. was, this was, put, put, this, put this on the copy machine and hit, and hit expand, you know, uh, enlarge. And mm-hmm. Living the Wiccan Life is a resource, incredible introduction to Wicca. Um, and it really taught, as I was going back through this journal, I'm going, oh, yeah, this was really cool. Um, but I worked through it, and, and I got even more deep in it, and I got even more adept at doing things. And there were times that I felt like Mickey Mouse with the mop and the, and the pail and a sorcerer's apprentice because <laughs> things, you know, sideways. But, but that was okay. And, and when I finished that, and by the time I finished that, I had connections to a number of people online in the Karelian tradition. And they were so incredibly warm and helpful and welcoming and um, yeah. just, you know, whatever you need, you know, just send us an email, send, get, call, you know. And I started calling people on the phone because, you know, I'm, I'm an analog man in a digital world here still, even though I can do this <laughs> stuff. So it's uh, – there. And, and by the time I got done, I did my self-wickening, and it was just this incredible initiatory experience. Even though I was doing it, I followed the script, did it by myself, um, and it, and, but it was me saying to the goddess, I'm, I'm with you, and I want you to be with me. 
And it was incredibly I, powerful. I did, I did my own self self uh, initiation too, and and yeah, it I I I can remember it was like in the uh, in the early nineties, and I can remember the night. I can remember you know everything. So yeah. Mm-hmm. If if listeners haven't done anything like that, they they might want to, you know. We've got all sort sort you know sorts of we have the, the entire spectrum of uh, experiences uh, and and uh, knowledge with people who listen, and and I'm very happy that we go around. The, you know, if you have the internet, you have us. So we're we're worldwide. Um, mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because that that I think is very important. Um, I have yeah. to say, you know, the the book. It's. I, I I want to know. First of all. Okay, first of all, I'm going to take. I, there's like so much that's like trying to come through my brain right now. I really, 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 really enjoy this book. And I think that there's, um, this is a book I wish I had when I was training uh, people at, at, when I worked on an Air Force base, I was like training the people who just, you know, they left home, they joined the military, they left home, they go to basic training. And then after basic training, they go to basically a, a vocational school. And that's where mm-hmm. I was is at the base where they were going to vocational school. So basic training is all about, you know, re-socializing you in, in a totally different, you're, you're now programmed to be in the military. When you go to the tech school, you're now, you're learning your skill, but you're now, you know, uh, starting to be more autonomous because you're away from your family. And that's where a lot of people come to me. Um, you know, they've always been interested in, in Wicca or being a Druid or whatever. And mm-hmm. I found myself uh, giving people a lot of the same basic information uh, and, and trying to find a way to tie it all in together. And I'm reading your book and I'm like, oh, I wish I had this book <laughs> because it's, it's a really good book for that and it's also a good book for you to go back and and kind of touch base you know if you if you feel like okay like you were saying with your corporate job and everything you know it got to a point where everything went to gray kansas for you so you needed to find something to bring everything back to to life i think a lot of us go through that you know no matter where Mm -hmm. we are on the path there you go path <laughs> where we are in the past, yep. it's it's nice to to you know reorient reorient yourself and and uh, and you had some really good techniques. So I, I don't want to get into the book right now. This is what I want to do okay. is to to get us into the book is why did you write this book? When did you write this book? You know, so, you told uh, me about yeah. studying and and you've mm-hmm. learned. Why this book? What happened? So after after I finished living the Wiccan life, I decided that I wanted to continue on a Wiccan path, on a, on on, on a, the path on the witch's path, and I decided that you know since I had been, I, I said, yeah, how can I put this? 
it's not that I thought I should be leading anything. It was just that I had done so much work on leadership and organizational development, and I had the experience as a Baha'i. And I had, you know, the experience of counseling and coaching people on some very difficult personal issues and spiritual issues, um, because, you know, even even in a corporate setting, once the door closes and somebody's working with a coach, it gets real personal real fast, because ultimately it's what's inside us that drives what we do. And you've got to go there. And so I said, OK, I'm going to take the first degree clergy class. So I, took, so I signed up for the first degree clergy class and I go through that. And I had a wonderful mentor named Reverend Ng. Um, and I completed that and, again, did the, self, uh, the self-initiation, uh, which, is, which, is, which you can do at the end of each of the degree programs. Um, although at the illustrations, we can also get in-person initiations, which I ended up doing for my third degree, which was amazing. But after the first degree, I said, this is feeling pretty good. And so I went and I, and I, and I continued with the second degree. And um, when I got and, and I decided that um, when I thought about my own experience with spirituality, with with paganism, part of what um, part of what made me uh, able to look at things like um, Crowley and tarot and um, Ouija boards and all that stuff when I was in school was I, I, I had my Catholic upbringing, basically believing that. Um, you know, sort of Jesus had my back if I messed up. And when I realized that that's not how things work exactly, I mean, you know, Jesus or whoever your patron deity is absolutely will have your back. Um, But we are responsible for what we do and we're accountable for what we do. And the thing about spiritual autonomy is it can be pretty darn scary is to suddenly realize that I am Mm -hmm. responsible for for my own spiritual growth from my own behavior, the consequences of my behavior come back to me as many times as I choose not to learn the lesson, um, you know, and, and there's no getting around it. it. It is what it is. It's, you know, and when I, I, because when I started doing tarot and I started, you know, I started really delving into tarot, into divination, into manifestation, into healing as a result of my Wiccan studies, I started to realize this is all up to me to do. If I'm going to do this, I've got to do it. I, you know, I've got to really, I've got to change. Mm-hmm. I have to change. And so I realized, I started thinking about um, all of the things that were blocks for me in learning all of this. Like, I mean, the questions I was asking Wendy, what the questions I was asking Wendy about, you know, the responses that she was preparing to my questions were all fear-based. They were all about, well, what if, what if I mess up? You know, what if, what if I do the tarot wrong and I offend deity? What if, what, you know, what if, I, what if I create cosmic enemies here that I can't even see? Um, and so it was working through all of that stuff in the degree program and in my later studies that I decided I was going to, for my second degree project, write a book on divination. And not just an introduction to tarot or, you know, although that's in my book, but it's very, very light touch, but really an introduction to um, how to learn divination, how to get past the mental and psychic and spiritual blocks and the shadow stuff that makes us believe we can't do it. And that was what that's the, and And so the book began as uh, I, I titled that project, The Fool. Um, because I felt like I was starting over, right? I felt like it was a new, you know, uh-huh. how to create a new beginning. 
using these spiritual tools. And so that became um, a bigger question of how do you decide, you know, because you can, you know, a lot of people feeling the way I was feeling in 2008 would walk through, you know, go to a metaphysical bookstore and walk in and go, there's the crystals and the books and the cards and I know the answer's in here somewhere, right? And mm-hmm. it is the answer in that store because you brought it in with you, right? And you brought your purpose mm-hmm. in with you. You brought you need is not more tools in that situation. What you need is to stop and say, what do I want my life path to look like? And as soon as I yeah. figured that out, that's when the book was born. So it really came out of my second degree studies. So I've got, you know, I, I totally credit my Wooch School studies and my Corellian experience for the existence of this book. It wouldn't be here without that. You started out with Mike. I, I have to say I love the fool, the 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 tarot card, the fool. Uh, there's so much rich symbolism in there. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you, you talked about how the um, and then people who study the tarot understand that the major arcana is is a path. It is a, a trip, and you you bring it up as the hero's journey, mm-hmm. like from uh, from yep. from Campbell. Um, the one thing that people you know, the fool doesn't have a number. It has a zero, which, you know, you mm-hmm. can argue, is it a number or is it not? Is it a placeholder? <laughs> um, but the zero is a circle. So is the fool the end of your journey or the beginning of your journey? The fool is, I love the fact that the fool, the fool is a very Taoist card for me. Because mm-hmm. the fool is, is taking that leap of faith and and just just knowing that you're going to, as you put it in in the book, it's like a cartoon, you know, Looney Tunes go off the side of the cliff, and as long as you don't look yep. down, Roadrunner goes out and and it's fine, but Wiley Coyote goes down there, looks down and goes, oh crap, and falls. Yep. That's a, a, yep. a good representation of the fool. Um, yep. So I, I just had to. Really? Yeah. That was a quote from him in the beginning of the book about that. Yep. I, um, I, call, I call it the Winnie the Pooh card because um, no matter what happens with Pooh, he, he's just really calm and things work out. So mm-hmm. um, I'm a, a big Pooh fan when it comes to that. Um, okay. So the, what I like about – go ahead. I was just going to say, the thing about the fool for me was uh, when, I, when I finished my graduate degree, my advisor looked at me and said, congratulations. Don't forget you haven't actually done anything yet. Right? <laughs> I built all this capability. I haven't really made an impact in the world yet. And that's what I think of with the fool card is you, you have awakened. You've got to take the next step. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry. No, I was trying to think of I, – I lost my train of thought. I went off the track. Uh, okay, one of the things that I really liked about this book, um, and, and what you've mentioned a lot, which is very important to you, some people you, – you talked about your dad and, and sending the money to the church because he didn't need a go-between between him and, and deity or source. 
Mm-hmm. And, you you know, that's one of the things that's pretty prevalent uh, thinking within paganism is, you know, we, we mm-hmm. try to, within Christianity in general, you have to go to the go-between to tell you what God wants or doesn't want. Um, whereas with us, we try to, to make that connection ourselves. But with that comes what you were talking about, the autonomy. And some people might come into into witchcraft hoping, you know, oh, can somebody give me a spell for this? Can somebody give me, and still kind of, you know, thinking that magic is this outside influence and not mm-hmm. understanding that it's it's within them and it's, you have it, that, that autonomous, you have the power. You have to yes. learn how to tap it and how to use it. And that's one of the things I really enjoyed about your, your book, because that's one of the things that I've run into with a lot of students. They're like, okay, um, I want to use crystals. How do I use crystals? Well, use crystals. <laughs> you, you get crystals that, you know, you think will help you and they help augment. And, and it's like they expect almost like a, um, like something out of a Disney movie, you know, mm-hmm. you take this and you blow on it in the full moon that you have to, to put deer's tears on this. And it, <laughs> you know what I'm, what I'm trying to, you know, mm-hmm. make, the, the point I'm trying to make is it's not some mysterious outside force. It is, in the way that you're you're tapping into this, but this is something that we we have unlearned. You you brought right. it up early. We have unlearned, and it, it is it's not rocket science. And it's <laughs> your 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 methods are are really good at at um, at teaching this. Um, now Reiki. Want to bring mm-hmm. up the Reiki because that's that's pretty important. I'm 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 not a level three. I'm a level two. I want to get my level mm-hmm. three. So maybe off mic, you and I can talk about maybe if you can help me get get to that. Um, sure. But Reiki is one of those things that's really hard to explain to people too. It's not witchcraft, Wicca, paganism. It but it's not not. It's it's a good tool. Like tarot, mm-hmm. you don't have to be you know pagan to read tarot, but right. it's it's one of the tools that we learn to use. And um, I, I just wanted to to you know explain to listeners that there's three things that I can think of off the top of my head. If I missed something, then I'm wrong. But you talk about runes, runes, R U N E S, runes. In the book, right. as a tool, you talk about uh-huh. um, the tarot and you talk about Reiki. You mention like sage and you mention crystals, but I think that those are the three main tools that you go into depth. Did I miss anything? No, and uh, no, but I, I think that that the real um, the real thing about the book is not so much the tools as it is the process. So right. it really is figuring out. You know, all of those things are discussed in the context of saying, where are you trying to go? 
And what do you want your path to look like? And then how can you use these things to help you walk that path with integrity? And the process of walking your path, I think of as a cycle of divination where you are, you're faced with a decision, and so you go to your divination method, whatever it may be. Um, it could be tarot. It could be deciding. You know, it could be looking for omens. It could be consulting your spirit guides after lighting a candle and meditating. It could be whatever it is, your method of divination, of getting guidance from spirit, um, from a source within yourself or, you know, a source that is a spiritual source out, you know, that's connected to you. And then from that information, making a decision about what it is you want, setting an intention. And then once you've set that intention, doing whatever it is you need to do to raise the energy within you to manifest that intention. And all of the things you were talking about, about you know, crystals and full moon and, you know, tears on the bed, all of that, you know, all of the things that people use in spell work are intended to focus your attention and your energy to give you a singular focus on the outcome that you are trying to manifest. And so, and there is no question that there are correspondences, that certain stones support certain actions, that certain herbs, certain times of the year, times of the, times of the month, uh, the zodiac, you know, all of the things all of the correspondences, all of the power sources that we have available to us, we can take those things and aim them at that intention. And they will support us, but ultimately we have got to take the action in the mundane world or nothing in the mundane world changes. You know, and I, I fumbled around saying that for, what, 15, 20 minutes, and you said it right there. That's why this book is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's the thing I want to explain to people. Yeah, you can use crystals. What do you want to do? What What are you trying yeah. to do? But the the, right. the power is not within the crystal. The power is within you, and you're just you know, it's this crystal is just a tool. Uh, right. The tarot is just a tool. And I can imagine growing up Catholic when you like you had to be afraid of all this stuff. <laughs> Uh, and right. then you have to like, okay, I have to get over that. And you mentioned that. You mentioned that. Mm-hmm. So, so you you gave. Again, I don't want to give away the book or or the show that you have coming up. I I, I hope that that was enough of a of an interest to to get people to yeah. be more interested in it. Okay. I do have to say, go back to the Reiki. Because that's one of the ones that I have a lot of people asking me about is, and and when I'm in the when I was taking my Reiki classes, I was with some really very enlightened people and very powerful people and very in tuned people taking this class, and none of them were magic, magic working people. None of them were pagan. They were all mm-hmm. very Christian. Um, mm-hmm. So that that you don't have to be of a specific faith to to get Reiki. Um, right. Explain. I can go through and I can give my little explanation of Reiki and and what it means. But what would you do? What? How would you explain Reiki to somebody who just you know, hey, John. <laughs> Why, Reiki? Well, so um, 
for me, Reiki, Reiki is two things, right? It's a hands-on energy healing modality that has a specific methodology to it, the way it's taught in Reiki's levels one and two around how to give a Reiki treatment um, and the things to do. So the physical sort of aspect of it, the actions that are being taken. The spiritual aspect of Reiki is that there is one energy in the universe, uh, that that energy is what we are made of, it's what surrounds us, it's what we're in, it's what's everything that is, is composed of that energy, and that the things that we see in this mundane world are simply um, constructs where, you know, uh, particles or elements of that energy have gotten together and agreed to be a tree. And so... There is one energy in the universe because we're made of it, because it motivates us, because it is, um, it is in fact what, um, how everything works. Then mm-hmm. there really, what illness is, is being out of alignment. It's having some kind of obstacle to the natural flow of that energy. And what Reiki does is someone who is attuned to Reiki, and Reiki is only one of many, many energy healing modalities. And every culture, every religion has a hands-on, has a uh, you know a hands-on healing something that that is a part of their of their belief system and how they operate. And so, but Reiki in particular was created by was discovered by Mikao Usui in Japan in the 1800s, and he taught it to a number of people in Japan who then brought it to the West. That's the really quick history. Um, but what Reiki is, is he, as a Reiki practitioner, you are attuned by a Reiki master to be a more effective channel for that energy. So you're attuned to the Reiki symbols, to the, to, but really what they are, they, they are like the runes, right, in my mind. The Reiki symbols both right. represent certain concepts and they are those concepts. So when you, when you're attuned to the Reiki symbols, it opens you as a channel. And then anytime you place your hands on yourself or other people for the purpose of healing, the energy will flow. And mm-hmm. the energy will go the highest good of the person you're sharing it with um, and it will go to the source of whatever it is that they are seeking healing about. So that's how I explain Reiki. It is. It's amazing when you when you when you do the Reiki, it you get drawn to where the healing needs to go. You you get drawn mm-hmm. to you can you can sense when you open your I'm I'm sitting here I have to put my hands together as I'm talking to you right now because they're they're starting to warm up because I'm getting into that Reiki <laughs> mode. You know yep, what I'm yep. talking about. I um, do. I do. But Reiki is is um, is a, a really good tool for for uh, because part of what you learn from Reiki too is is one of the the things that you talk about in the book as well. And again, not trying to give away everything about the book, but it you you know cleansing grounding all that stuff that's when you when you work with reiki uh it's easier to connect with that energy and because when you were talking about how you know there's all this energy and that you know this this energy agrees to be a tree but it's all the same mm-hmm. energy i was thinking about like the vibration like there's a a, a vibration a background vibration of the of the universe um, mm-hmm. 
that scientists can, and, and you talk a little bit about science too in the book, but scientists can tell you, okay, it's, you know, this is the vibration of the universe. And when you talk about Reiki, you talk about, you know, a lot of things uh, when you're explaining Reiki, there's the symbols, there's, uh, when you talk about the chakras, they're like vortexes, vortices of, of the energy. They have the symbols, but the main thing is the colors. I think when mm-hmm. you're trying to teach people and you're going through right. the spectrum and mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't want to get it. Cause I, I, you know, John, I want to talk Reiki and, and that's, that's, that's an entirely different series of shows that I hope that you will be doing uh-huh. coming up. <laughs> so, so when are you, let's, let's, start wrapping up to the what do you what else are you doing and uh when yep. are you planning on on having the show and and can people contact you because the show's not all you do the book's not all you do right right so um you know i mentioned i live on whidbey island i live in a town called clinton um an area called Skatchit head um that and i have a uh, i just moved here like 2 weeks ago so i'm in the process of putting everything together but um i had a practice a healing practice in seattle for 3 4 years which i'm moving here um i'm still going to be doing uh reiki one day a week at uh stargazers bookstore in bellevue washington um which is wednesdays pretty much every wednesday um but i'm going to be offering reiki energy healing uh sessions reiki training um shamanic healing and that includes soul retrieval uh, it includes um, power animal retrieval it includes um, a number of of techniques uh, and i teach shamanic journeying um, and I also hey, teach I, workshops I wanted, based on the book. Uh, I wanted to say something real quick when you're talking about the healing, especially with the Reiki. Um, you don't have to, you know, I, don't, I can call you up and say, hey, John, I would like some Reiki healing, and I'm on the other, other side of the continent, right? Mm-hmm. You can do it over distance, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I just want to let people know that. Uh, yeah, and so and anybody who wants to know more information, you can just reach me at john j o n at powerandhealing dot com. That's the name of the business, the Center for Power and Healing. And um, you know, the book. The, if people are interested in the book, I'd love for them to uh, go to the Corellian website and go to the Core Store C O R R um, and uh, check it out. Or you know, you can find it in all the usual online places as well. Um, send me a link to it, and I'll put it. In, I can put it in uh, the information on the show, so anyone that's listening okay. to the show can click on it for the book. Um, and I can also put it, you know, on on the information I, I spread for for uh, Facebook. Um, Great. So you're busy. <laughs> Are you sure you can do the podcast? Am I what? Are you sure you could do this podcast? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so for about <laughs> six months this year, I did um, – I, I had an hour-long show on Bold Brave Media called Reclaiming Your Sacred Path, and I, I had so much fun doing it. Um, I did it for six months and finished up 24, 24 shows, which was my agreement. Um, and I, I interviewed really interesting people. I interviewed members of the tradition. I interviewed um, a woman who coaches – 
people uh, to be more authentic and emotionally intelligent with the aid of uh, Tennessee walking horses that are trained through natural horsemanship. And by building a relationship with the horse, you begin to develop empathy and talk about how she does that. Talk to, you know, there are a number of people that I, that I interviewed um, and the interviews were all based on, um, you know, so how did you come to do what you do? What, how is this? Tell me about your sacred path. Right. And every one of them yeah. had a spiritual pathway. It, it was just wonderful. Um, and so that was a blast. And, and those shows are actually on my website, powerandhealing.com. Um, you know, the link, the link to those shows, if anybody's interested in the archive versions of those. Um, but the, um, so I really, I just, I love doing the radio thing. It was really fun. And doing it twice a month instead of four times a month, which you and I have talked about, uh, is great. The cool thing is that the first show I'm going to do is on September 9th, and you were talking about Reiki. Um, and that is actually something I'm sure you're going to talk about uh, in the future if you don't already. The Global Wicca Summit, which is going to be all on radio and online. Uh, and I'm going to be, that's going to be my first show, and I'm going to dedicate that to, I've got a panel of people who are members of the tradition who we're going to talk about Wicca and energy healing. Or the witch's healer. Very cool. That's exactly what we're talking about. Yep. Well, that's that's going to be amazing. And and I'm glad you brought up the Global Wicca Summit. Um, for the, the week of September 4th through the 10th, uh, we're kind of, I wouldn't say suspending the normal programming. We're enhancing it. Because, like, mm-hmm. Selena and the Circle people are still going to do Tuesday, but the focus is going to be more on, 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 on we're trying to be more cohesive with, with the programming of what we can do for Wicca. Um, the, mm-hmm. you know, Ed, Ed, Ed uh, Hubbard, Ed, Ed the Pagan, um, Ed Carell, he, he has this, uh, he and I talked about, you know, he's got this, this, uh, drive right now and it's a it's a very important one especially as we head up to the parliament of of the world religion of world's religions um that we fought so hard and the Karelians were were there with the the parliament since like over i think it's about 10 years ago when it was in 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 um in australia so mm-hmm. the Corellians have been part of this, and, and the last one was in Salt Lake City in 2015. And, you know, Lady Lady uh, Archpriestess Stephanie Neal was part of the, the procession there. And this is like, mm-hmm. you know, world's religions. This is Buddhist. This is, you know, Christian. This is uh, Sikh. And everyone's there. And it's, it's, by, it's, it's our time to be taken seriously and and we take Mm -hmm. ourselves seriously but you know what i what i mean we we need to have that that place at the table at the parliament Mm -hmm. and after the parliament so my understanding of the vision of of having that the global wicca summit is for us to talk about what is wicca what makes what what is the we're so good at why my path is different than yours and why right, might right. you know we're not as good at what you know what what brings us together, and that's what's going to help us. That's what's going to help us grow and thrive and get to to where where we need to 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 be. Because I have to tell you, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here, but but 
it's kind of scary right now with talk here in the United States of religious tasks for task force tasks task forces. You know what I mean? That they're you yeah. know. Yeah. I, I I want to make sure that we don't get our rights taken from us because another belief's rights takes precedence over us. And the way that we the, the way that we make sure that we have um our place at the table is for us to come together and say, Okay, well what is what are our rights? Who right. are we? Who who are we? And, you know, it's that old saying, you ask a, a pagan, uh, you know, you ask 10 pagans a question, you're going to get 20 different answers. You know, <laughs> everyone's yep. got their own answers. So how do we come together? Um, so September 9th will be your first show here on Pagans Tonight. I'm looking forward to it. John, I'm so glad <laughs> that we got a chance to meet at Lustration. Um, I know that um, Sir Mike Neal was like, Yo, you need to talk to John. Did you talk to John yet? Here, and he, and he brings you to me. <laughs> this is John. He was the same, he was saying the same thing, but it told me I had to talk to you. So that, that he he wanted us to talk, and he was right. Well, and yeah, and we had a really good conversation. Like everybody else disappeared, and it was nice. And that's kind of how I feel about this show because we were only supposed to go an hour, and we're like into an hour and a half. <laughs> Oh, cool. And it, we, it kind of flew good. by. Yeah. We, yeah. It, it flew by well, for good, me. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully it flew by for everybody else. And, um, yeah. Well, I, lo- I love and, that. So I, I love this conversation. So thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you. I, I And I also look forward to hearing more of your music. I'm, I'm looking for, uh, you know, you being able to have a um, – a place to play your music and, and share with everyone. Um, I, I would like Thank to you. have seen you in, in, I would love to have seen you uh, in how to succeed in business without even trying. <laughs> <laughs> I was drunk in case you want to know. And I played you Cornelius a- Hackle in Hello when I was 13. Oh. <laughs> it was fun. I think I we both, I, I think we both got, I, I used to do theater too. Theater, uh-huh. acting, um, which is a conversation that you and I should have some time on on air about the energy work that comes mm-hmm. from acting. You know, if you want to put it into terms of of magic, you can think of it in in terms of Celtic magic and glamour. Uh, glamour mm-hmm. magic is acting. Woo! Okay. So <laughs> that's not this show. We need to wrap up this show. Um, I don't have yep. your music to end this show on, but you are in the Seattle area, and I have a band mm-hmm. that I've talked to you about, and I'm going to try to introduce you to these these fine, fine people that I think you're going to really connect with. They're called Chronolis. Cool. They're kind of pagan, steampunk, awesome people, and they did a cover of, uh, of, of The Reed and Harm None. Uh, so I'm going to end the show with that. Do you have any last thoughts before I start the show? Or start, start the song no, I, end the show? I think I'm just really happy to be to be having this conversation with you and with our listeners, and I'm really looking forward to the show. I, I think that um, for anybody who is really experiencing 
that sense of I just really don't know what's next. I've kind of woken up to what I'm doing isn't working and I need another answer. Um, I don't claim to have all the answers, but I do have a process for working that through. And I would love to be able to help. So again, it's John at John, John J O N at power and and just hang in till September. And I'll be, I'll be here on pagans tonight. Yes. And thank you for being here on pagans tonight. Tonight, here's Chronolis and the Reed and Harm None on Pagans Tonight Radio Network.
I grew up seeing things a little differently Appearing, disappearing, hardly innocent Nor tied down to the ground I learned to roll and tumble with the punches Glory in my stripes and spots Walk by invisible and never make a sound But heavy is the crown that's always hidden Tender is the heart you never see Hard and fast shines the grin that we flash But there's a vulnerable stripe or two on me Maybe any place outside of Wonderland is not for me, my friend. If I leave my grin behind, remind me that we're all mad here and it's okay. Sun up, sun down, the shadows hide me down in Wonderland, Wonderland. Nobody knows the way, but if you find it in your dreams, you can find it at your day job somewhere south of hell. Take the path to left or right with just your gut to guide you. The story is not for anyone else to tell. You can't go home in the middle of the magic carpet ride. You gotta greet the sun before you love it don't You can't forsake the journey for the safety of your own until you learn your to see and hear everybody loud and clear but the truth comes down in riddles that are safe enough to share that's how it is in songs you see and stripes always looks good on me whether or not i'm really there heavy is the burden of the wise ones when no one understands a word they say the jabberwock never bothered anyone but nobody believes him to this day Remind me that we're all mad here and it's okay. Sun up, sun down, the shadows find me out in Wonderland, Wonderland. Nobody knows the way, but if you find it in your dreams, you can find it at your day job somewhere south of hell. Take the path to left or right with just a gut to guide you. The story is not for anyone else to. Mind me that we're all mad here and it's 
And it is okay. Thank you for joining me and John. And before that, Jason Anke. Uh We'll be back in two weeks' time. I have uh, lined up for us a Facebook group called Sassy Witches. Sassy Witches? That sounds like fun. Who knows what Jason has? Maybe he'll tell us about his trips, his uh, his traveling throughout Europe and the coolness. It, I... I live vicariously through Jason and Ari uh, and their trips to Europe. Uh, I want to thank Darren for being here. I miss you, Darren. It's been a long summer. I haven't seen you very much. I haven't been on. Uh, Lourdes, thank you also for joining us. Uh, Mystical Carter was on as well earlier tonight. And if you can, try to join us when we're live because we are all mad here. And it's okay. You're not alone. Every night is Pagans tonight, and I'm here for you. I'm here for you, but now I'm going. But it's okay. There's years of archives, so you don't have to miss me for too long. You're listening to Pagans Tonight. Pagans Unite on Pagans Tonight. Many paths, one network. For over five years, we've been the place to connect with the best, brightest, and most trusted voices in the pagan world. Every night is Pagans Tonight.